how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Welcome back, everybody. It is Wednesday, August 2nd. You know what that means. It is Cage My Q's UFC Nashville Picks and Prediction Show with yours truly, Cage. As always, I'm joined with my co-host, Miles. How are you doing today, Miles? Not bad, not bad. I got a co-pilot over here, Charles Oliviera. Just got back from watching Oppenheimer. Very long movie, but... It's, it's pretty good. They definitely did the research. A lot of the facts were dead on, but you could feel all three hours of that shit, though. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're just coming off that exciting pay-per-view weekend, UFC 291. Oh, yeah. If people missed out on it, Justin Gagey knocked out Dustin Poirier for the BMF yeah. title with that uh, with that leg kick that to the kick. face, yeah. uh, just like Edwards did to Usman. Coincidentally, yep. in the same building, almost a year to the date, <laughs> which is which is crazy. So you yeah. had uh, the, the co-main event was a pretty uh, uh, fun. You had Alex Fajeda versus Jan Jovic. A little bit of controversy with the de- uh, decision, but it's always yeah. with the judges. I thought it was a close fight. So had they gone yeah. Jovic, I would have been fine with it. Uh, like yeah. I, I thought it was. Uh, Pajeda, like you said, you thought when you watched it, it was you know, yeah. but that, that's where the, the judging comes into play there. That's why I think you need to stick them was razor above thin, the arena. Yeah. What's interesting, they but, actually have two potential contenders for the belt now in mind that uh, Pajeda is part of that title belt. They are going to do uh, Magomed Ankalaev and Johnny Walker to decide the second part of that title belt. So... That's pretty much going to be a fun fight. Be, yeah, I think it's probably going to end up being Bahena versus Ankalaev, which was going to be a cool fight. I could, I could, I could dig that. I, I did that, and then of course you had Kevin Holland get the round two submission, uh, round yeah. one submission on Michael Chiesa. Michael Chiesa looked kind of rough. He looked rusty, but Kevin Holland, yeah, he's found Dang. he's found his home at the welterweight division. That long length, so. that reach plays a good factor into the game that he has, and then he's showcased yeah. better uh, takedown defense. So yeah, no I think he's all he around just gotten yeah. better at welterweight. I think he's the bigger guy. He gets a little more strength, but like Chase has kind of been on that downward slide for a while now. Like I wasn't yeah. expecting too much from him, especially when you know you got a guy like Luke who like if you're if you're persistent enough, you can get him down. You just got to be careful you don't get caught in nothing. But Chase couldn't even do that. Like. He just, I don't know. He tried to take Holland down that one time, and then he just kind of gave up. He's like, ah, never mind. Never yeah. mind. We're just going to keep striking, even though I'm terrible at that. And, of course, Derek Lewis knocking out Marcus. Yo, I wasn't uh, even mad Ruggiero I got that one wrong. Yeah. wasn't even mad about it. That was awesome. Yeah. Me, me <laughs> he pulled either. A fucking, uh, he pulled a uh, – Jorge um, Masvidal. Exactly, yeah, yeah. At the BMF title fight. <laughs> Ironically enough, exactly. Know, so he cool. he breaks the knockout record uh, finally. So 
props so, to him. Maybe that rejuvenates the latter half of his career. Maybe he can so, make one final run at, at the belt that's kind of eluded him. He, he yeah. gets so close, and then he gets pushed back every single time. Yeah. But he's always going to be a guy that's that's an exciting fighter that's going to put it out there with the striking, and he does it for the people. Watch, so, yeah. yeah. So, and, of course, that. Bobby Green getting a submission. Fucking what was that? But, you know, it was Tony Ferguson, so there was really no obstacle there. I think everybody it, it was, Up that. until that, uh, that third round, it was exciting. Like, uh, Ferguson, mm-hmm. even though I still had Green winning, Ferguson oh, was yeah. putting into it, and he was hitting him with some deep shots. And I was like, yeah. round three, I was like, maybe it's 1-1. One, one. Maybe it's a very close 2-0. Bobby Green, uh, but then I felt like Green was like mostly getting hit because of his own incompetence. Like he kept his hands too low and he wouldn't really guard. And he was a little off that night, so the speed yeah. wasn't there, I think. Well, so I think that's well, what like, made Ferguson have a fighting chance. And like we said, that was the thing going into it was I thought it was he kind of mirrored Ferguson with the hands down low, not showing any defense kind of a strategy to allow him to throw a lot more and uh, it, it worked a lot more for Bobby Green than it did Ferguson, especially in round yeah. three. That's where Bobby Green's cardio was showcased once again. Yeah. It's always round three. Oh, you, you can you can tell that Bobby Green, he has cardio for days. He can go three, four, or five rounds and strike yeah. because he doesn't – because I don't think he puts everything into his shots. I think he just a lot of times is just touching you and go, touching you and go. Yeah. But because Ferguson was so tired – he was able to go to that jujitsu. He was able to just lock in that that late arm uh, triangle, arm triangle. Arm and, and with five seconds crazy. left, five seconds left. And it's arm. funny because he had it deep, and he was sitting there, and I was watching. I was like, "Dump your hips. You, you got to dump yeah. your hips on the other other side." And yeah. then eventually, he's like, "Oh yeah, I got to dump my hips on the other side." <laughs> like I'm, wa- I'm watching it. I'm watching it in real time. I'm like. Did he get it or did he just not tap out and then the, the round ended? Yeah. Because they, they didn't tell you. And with me yeah. not having the sound on at the time, I couldn't <laughs> tell. And then they're like, and then they're holding his hand up and I had to go to, to, to the app and it said yeah. submission. I was like, oh, they called it early. I was like, I just couldn't tell because how the the ref was uh, moving him off. Yeah. He didn't move him off like he had it. He just moved him yeah. off like the end of the round was done. Yeah, I knew he had it once he got to one side. Like what he was like yeah. kind of on top of you. You can't really get ahead an arm triangle like that. You got to get to the side if you really want to make it tight. You got to start kind of walking around so that you're yeah. more like angular, like perpendicular almost to really sink it in. But I think he's just not really used to that. So I feel like he got it, and then he was like, "Oh, I got it," but he didn't think about like, "Oh wait, I need to tighten it up." And I think that's what took him so long. But Good for him. Like, how yeah. long has it been since Bobby Green got a submission? You know, like, forever. But I before know. we get started with the UFC Nashville, we got twelve fights on this uh, on this uh, fight night card, uh, which is going to take yeah. place at Bridgestone Arena in downtown Nashville. Uh, of course, let's uh, put a shout out to our social media pages. Of course, we're on Twitter. Instagram, YouTube, and Twitch. You see Cage IQ for Twitter, Cage My IQ for Instagram. Same thing for uh, YouTube, and then for Twitch, it's at Bloodline ENT. And of course, we're part of the Bloodline Entertainment Network's uh, core of uh, podcast shows. You can find all Bloodline Entertainment on Twitter, on Instagram, 
and on Twitch at Bloodline ENT. So please do us a favor, subscribe to all the channels, especially the YouTube channel, and give us a follow as well. And then please smash the like button down below on this video and hit us up in the comment section with your picks and predictions for UFC Nashville. And of course, we have merch out now. All you gotta do is go to fightersfirst.shop, go to the Cage My IQ collection, and get one of our new shirts with the sword and shield logo. We got it in white, green, and gray. And if you want to check out any of this stuff at fightersfirst.shop, they got anywhere from MMA to uh, jiu-jitsu to wrestling uh, merchandise there. Check it all out. Mike Ginn's your guy. Hit, give him a follow on fightersfirst.shop's uh, page on Twitter and on Instagram. But definitely check out one of our shirts right there. But other than that, let's get started with the action here. The first fight that we have on the prelims is uh, whoop, wrong one. Right is one. yep, <laughs> is a men's uh, flyweight right. matchup between O'Day Osborne versus Asu Almabayev. We we got Osborne the plus one twenty five underdog. We got Almabayev who is the minus one fifty favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight? You know, it's a little weird looking at those stats, especially considering like O'Day Osborne for the long time has really been kind of a pillar in the flyweight division. He's one of those guys. He's kind of like Olenek, you know, for the heavyweights. He would always be that gatekeeper. Sometimes he would edge up into that 15 spot, but for the most part, he'd kind of hang out at like the 16 to 18 range. And that would be the guy you kind of got to get past to, to, you know, get a shot at getting a ranked fighter, you know? So I feel like Osborne over his career, even though he hasn't been in the UFC that long, you've definitely seen a lot of improvement. He's really rounded out. Uh, his volume is, is pretty much been decent since the get go. Um, but he's become a lot more technical with his striking. He does kind of keep his guard a little bit open, a little bit wide, not super great guard discipline, but I think he makes up for it because there's always something coming at you. So other fighters don't usually get as much chance to take advantage of the openings he leaves. Um, and of course, he can go to the wrestling kind of whenever he needs it. He's very good up on the on the cage. Um, he can hit those takedowns, do a little jujitsu when he needs to, but he's more of a stand-up guy. Um, sometimes his chin isn't there, you know, I think he gets a little too trigger happy with the flying knees, uh, it sets him up to, you know, get into some trouble, especially, you know, it seems like his chin's taking some battle damage. So you got to cover that as much as you can, as you get older in this sport, especially if you don't want to be, you know, getting knocked out all the damn time. Um, but even so he's already proven he belongs in the UFC, right? This Almabayev guy, it, I couldn't find really much of anything on him because he's from such a small fight league. He's from Brave FC, which yeah. I think is one of the fight leagues under UFC's umbrella, but it's it's one of the smaller ones. It's not a yeah. Cage Warriors. It's not an LFA, like where some of the bigger names come from. And this is his debut. And Ode Osborne, for a guy who's largely unknown, is kind of a hard draw, you know? Like, it's not a Magomed Ankalaev, or not Ankalaev, um uh, Makayev, it's not Makayev, but you know, it's still, it's going to be a tough fight for him. Um, I couldn't really find any tape on him. I know he has a 17 and two record. He only has two losses early in his career with his sixth and uh, fifth and sixth fight. And after that, he got on to like a 13 fight win streak. I think it is right now. And to be fair, one of those losses was actually to, uh, Tajir Limbekov, which we already know is, is kind of a name in the flyweight division right now. Um, but that was kind of earlier in his career. So maybe he wasn't ready for that at the time, 
uh, but he's mostly a submission specialist. Um, he also has quite a few decisions, eight submissions, six decisions, and only three KOs. That tells me a lot about his game. Um, I can see he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu player, so that's probably where he wants the fight to go. He's probably a guy who wants to crowd, get the fight to the cage, and then hunt for those takedowns, try to work that submission game as much as he can. If he can't do it, then that would explain why he's largely a decision fighter. I think the hands are mostly just there to create openings, close distance to create those takedowns. If he can't get you down, he'll just grind you out on the cage. Um, but that's nothing Ode Osborne hasn't seen before. And that's really nothing Ode Osborne doesn't do himself in a lot of cases. Like if he doesn't feel like he can get the rhythm going, he can always rely on his wrestling, which is pretty decent at this point in his career. So it's it's a little strange to he, me that Mabayev is the favorite here. Yeah, he utilized it a little bit against Charles Johnson. That's that's what he helped did. him kind of like yeah. break any momentum that Johnson would get in that fight. And yeah. I love the fact that he's been training, of course, with Aljamain Sterling and Rob uh, right now for this yeah. camp. For this camp, he went with them. If you're watching the pay per view, he was sitting with them. You, you look at the the IG account; it shows him training with them, working with them jiu-jitsu and the grappling side of things because that's where uh, Alma Baev is going to be strength is that and he's very limited though with the striking so uh, Alma Baev is going to constantly pressure forward with that jiu-jitsu sambo style that he that he rocks uh, both together and he's going to look to take you down and just like he said hunt for submissions hunt for top guard control his uh, opponent and let them make a mistake in order for him to capitalize on it. And Ode Osborne has a 72% takedown uh, defense. So yeah, he's not he's very really easy good to, on his feet. So yeah. he's not very uh, easy to take down. So he's going to, yeah. in my opinion, stop a lot of those takedowns. He might get taken down once or twice yeah. within the three rounds, but he's going to do a great job of stuffing those takedowns, get the, the strike mm -hmm. going. He can knock you out. The one weakness has been his chin. He got knocked out by... Tyson Nam and Manel Cape, but that's not going to be something. He, yeah, it's not going to be something that he's going to have to worry about with Alma Baev, considering the limited amount of striking that he uses. So I think he's going to be very confident on his feet with the movement. He's going to throw at uh, Alma Baev. He's going to land a lot of combinations. I think it's going to go to the decision, and he's going to win yeah. the decision easily as long as he, yeah. he can stay on the feet as much as possible. The longer the fight goes to the ground, the less it takes away from his striking and his confidence. But I feel like he's going to be uh, uh, doing good. He's going to defend the takedowns. He's going to land uh, the volume. And it's going to be enough to outdo Alma uh, Baev's uh, grappling, especially if he's able to get two to three takedowns. I think the volume's just going to be too much for it. Uh, I would have thought that it would have been Flip-flop to where Ode Osborne would have been minus 150 and Alabayev would have been plus 125, but I'm not hating it because I will, I'm going to attack that 125 mark there with him. I'm going to attack him with the money line, and then I'm going to go with the over one and a half lines because I don't think that he gets a knockout, but I think he wins uh, by decision. But you never know with these later rounds with certain guys getting tired and then getting hit. And maybe he could get a finish, but definitely do those two, especially with the lines that you get right now. Yeah, for sure. No, yeah, I think the the volume is going to be a big factor. I think the takedown defense is going to be a big factor. 
Um, it might also be worth your while to um, try to play the uh, live odds a little bit here because it looks like, according to his record, Amabayev typically has his best rounds later on. Like second round seems to be his best round. Third round is like second best. If he can't quite get you there, sometimes he'll be able to catch you in a mistake later on. So the over one and a half makes a lot of sense. If you play the live odds, I think that when he's fresh, he might have a better performance, just constantly pressuring, hunting for those takedowns. I don't think they're not going to, I don't think they're going to be super successful. I think Ode Osborne's going to stuff them. But if he's trapped on the cage and not producing volume, then I think Amabayev may take that yeah. first round and we might see a bit of a swing in the odds a little bit. Um, but, well, I mean, it depends. So I think the money line here is is good to start with. If you're playing the live odds, maybe after that second, we might see something better than plus 125 once Ode Osborne gets going again, gets his volume there. But, yeah, I think the, the over yeah. one and a half rounds makes the most sense for sure. And just for instance, that with the Yehovich Fajeda fight, after round one, uh, Alex Fajeda was plus 400. On, on the money line yeah. live. And so I know a lot of people uh, went there and doubled down on that uh, live money line there and mm-hmm. cashed in big time when he won by split decision. Yeah. Let's move yeah. on to the second fight. This one actually got added just last night after two of his oh. fights got canceled uh, in the last couple of weeks. We got a men's featherweight matchup between Sean Woodson versus Moran Santos. There is not a money line out right now, but I can uh, double check uh, as we go. Uh, but uh, what are your thoughts on this matchup? I can only assume Woodson I... is the favorite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, it's pretty open and shut. Like you had what's a, I, I texted you about this one last night because I thought they were yeah. scrapping the bout because Butler backed out on like what is it six days notice and of course nobody's gonna touch that so they pulled up this poor kid out of the out of the minors and like what's he gonna say no i don't want my shot at the ufc so you know of course he took it but at the same time like woodson is a big long boy for the division he's got pretty good boxing like i think woodson has a lot of growth still to do i see some issues with his game particularly like his legs are so skinny. Every time you kick his calves, his legs like fly out from under him practically. So he needs to get better at kind of defending the lower body. He could work on, uh, you know, his gas tank a little bit. Some, some fights, he kind of burns himself out going into the third round. Um, he isn't the strongest grappler. Uh, also, this is him coming off of a year break. So I think that maybe helps even things out, given that Santos is – he is coming out of LFA, six days notice. He has 13 and one record, mostly a KO decision fighter, six, uh, seven KO, six decisions. But um, I don't think there's any threat of like a strong grappler here to throw Woodson off. So I think it's going to be an easy slam dunk. Woodson is probably going to take this one. Um, because he had such a change up in the opponents, it's probably safe to go with the decision on this one. But there is always that possibility he could just outwork him because Santos is not used to this level of competition. And he could get like a late, maybe second, third round knockout. Um, but yeah, because there's this is in such flux, you don't even know what the money line is. I think only the over one and a half rounds is the safe bet here. Um, I think Woodson is a slow starter. That's historically the way he goes. He kind of, you know, mostly sits behind his jabs and takes reads in the first round. So if you're going over one and a half, you're pretty safe knowing that there's going to be a second, probably a third round. Even if he has a finish, 
it's going to be in like, you know, the, the later half of the second. So over one and a half makes sense. But I mean, you can't even go off of anything else because again, six days notice, like what the fuck yeah. is this? <laughs> yeah. And then on top of that, Woodson has a, a three inch height advantage and a seven inch reach advantage, which is huge. Uh, so he's going to be able to hit uh, Santos from a distance where Santos is going to have to get inside of Woodson to land anything that he wants. And I'm always the one to go with the, the veteran here in these matchups. And on top of it, he's the one that's going to be more battle-tested ready. Santos is taking it with less than a week left until the fight. He's, he took it on Monday night, uh, of course. And then the fight is Saturday afternoon, more than likely. So it's going to be only five days to be prepared for it. And yet, even though he's been training, he hasn't been training specifically for Sean Woodson, who has the bigger reach, bigger height. He's going to be able to hit him from different angles and likely has more power. Moran Santos does have knockout power. He has four or five uh finishes on his uh, under his belt but it's going to be harder to get inside on a guy and then knock him out so i'm going with sean woodson here i think he gets it done later in rounds two or three uh, especially with santos more than likely to put a lot into round one that's what you see these guys doing when they're taking on short news they're putting the whole kitchen sink at the round one to try and get the fight uh taken care of then and then afterwards they start to slow down tremendously and that's where Sean Woodson has the opportunity to just kind of go slow, be patient round one, take whatever is thrown at him, uh, don't overdo it. And then once Santos does what he has to do, then you can take over and get your game going with no pressure and no urgency as long as you don't get hit big time uh, to where Santos has a big round. So I'm going with that uh, with, when it comes to betting. We don't know what the lines are yet, so I, I would say the best bet with that is to play the live odds on this one, especially since we won't know what they are until tomorrow or, or Friday. So definitely hit the live odds on this one and hope, like I said, that Moran Santos has a big first round and it kind of lowers the odds down, and then that's where Woodson will take over and you could get a better line on him. Considering this one could be one of those ones that starts out with like minus 600 with Woodson, which is huge. And I've never bet on that for a guy like Woodson. Uh, so for me, I'm going to look at it when it's live. I'm not going to bet anything other than the live bet. Yeah. No, I mean, there's always the chance that the odds makers might be a little nervous, especially yeah. a guy on six days notice. So let, let's say the live odds uh, come Thursday, Friday. Turns out Sean Woodson is a huge favorite. There might not be a big chance that, you know, even if Santos has a big first, I think the odds makers might still be super nervous. Like, we've yeah. never seen this guy at this level. He's here with zero preparation. Just because he had a big first doesn't mean shit. Like, it's, it's yeah. like Ilya Tapora and Jai Herbert. Like, so much Jai Herbert had a first round. He's up against Ilya Tapora. So, like, that doesn't matter. But, yeah. I mean, I guess that's, yeah, that's all you could really do with this. It's kind of a shit situation. Yeah. Let's move on to the next fight on this prelim. Uh, we got a men's flyweight matchup between Jake Hadley versus Cody Durden. Jake Hadley comes in the minus 180 favorite, and Cody Durden comes in the plus 150 underdog. What are your thoughts on this flyweight matchup? 
Uh, this one's kind of interesting. Um, these guys are similar, but I feel like Jake Hadley's kind of a version of Cody Durden, but he's a little more refined. Like they have a lot of similar qualities. They both are good, strong wrestlers. They have good top control. Although Hadley can fight from the top and from the bottom. When he goes on the bottom, he is good at uh, hunting for submissions. He doesn't just kind of sit there and accept the position. Um, like in the, uh, what was that? Namas, Namas, ah, I can't even say his name. Not Nas, Nascimento. I think I said that right. Alan Nascimento fight. Um, that was a lot of yep. back and forth in the grappling. Uh, but you saw that Hadley isn't the fighter to just accept the bottom and then just kind of hope that, you know, maybe the guy will slip into something or other. He can't do like a, a Paul Craig. Very few fighters can do what Paul Craig can do. So Hadley takes the initiative. I like that. Um, I think between these two, I would probably give Hadley the power and the speed advantage in the hands. Durden is just, he's very, very dogged about hunting for those submissions, or I'm sorry, for the takedowns. Uh, so his wrestling on the cage is really good, which is a big reason why he's a decision fighter. Um, he's only in the UFC one by finish one time. So that he's not great about finding those submissions. I think he gets the top control. And then he mostly just kind of settles in, maybe a little ground and pound here and there, but really he's more of a control fighter. And I think that's not going to work very well with Hadley's style. I think on the feet, Hadley's going to be too quick with his movement, putting too much power on Durden. I think that's going to make him nervous. It's going to cause Durden to shoot, uh, but I don't think he's going to be able to get him down. Jake Hadley has pretty good uh, takedown defense, but even if it goes to the floor, I'm confident Jake Hadley will go to the mat on his own terms. So he's not going to get caught in a vulnerable position necessarily, uh, but he may go down to the mat specifically to try to turn the tables, get that back, and then set in for some ground and pound, maybe a submission here or there. I think Adley, Hadley's activity is going to be the, the key factor here that just sets him apart from Durden. Um, so the odds are pretty close on this one. I could see Hadley taking it by decision uh, just through activity because Durden does have a pretty good gas tank with all that wrestling. Um or he could potentially get like a late knockout. Um, I'm not sure if he's necessarily going to have as much luck in the submissions just because Durden does have a large gas tank. And I think he can maybe fight his way out of a lot of really sticky situations on the mat. But on the feet, I think he's going to get out outstruck. Um, I don't think we're necessarily going to be seeing the classic like two strong grapplers with too much respect and it becomes a, a slug match. I think Durden's going to want to try to get this into that wrestling range as quickly as possible. Um, but at the same time, if he gets sloppy with those takedown attempts, that's the opening for Hadley to start piecing him up on the feet and potentially set up for a late KO second, third round. Um, I would definitely be playing over one and a half rounds. That's a no brainer. Um, I think yeah. Durden might have a bit of a strong first, so you might see a bit of a swing in the live odds there. Um, especially if he's able to actually take Hadley down. I don't think he'll be able to get him in trouble, but if Hadley's kind of scrambling on the mat, it kind of creates more of a toss-up. And if it looks like Durden is able to keep up, that might close that spread a little bit to make that money line worth it, uh, or at least more worth it than it is now. Um, but other than that, you know, it, it's going to come down to, you know, what, what does that first round look like in terms of whether or not I'd be comfortable betting on like a knockout prop bet sort of thing for Hadley? Yeah, Hadley's going to be the the favorite when it comes to the stand-up striking. I really like the fact that he attacks the body very well. Usually here, you throw one shot at the face and then he'll return the, the combo with a shot to the body. So he's always trying to hit not just one area. He's trying to uh, soften up 
everything on it on his opponent. He'll throw a leg kick and to mix that into it to the calf kick. He's always trying to slow every part of his opponent's body down, which is the goal in MMA is to slow them down and to land more. Whereas you got Cody Durden, who is heavy on the wrestling. He, the last fight out, uh, I believe he had 11 takedowns on uh, Charles Johnson. Johnson. And then he had four in the fight before that. Uh, and then, Mote, yeah. Yeah, Mote. And he just dominated with the control time, dominated on the mat, and then didn't do as much. He's more of a control guy over over a offensive when he's on the mat. He's not trying to lose the position by throwing uh, contact. He's trying to keep that position, keep everything in the dominant side, throw when he needs to keep keep it, to keep the ref from pushing them up, and then he'll move when he has to and throw. But it's not a lot of offense when he's on the mat. It's all about keeping uh, the action where it's at and then do what he just needs to do just to win the, the time in the rounds. And then he, in one fight, he had 12 minutes against, he had 12 minutes against Mote with the four takedowns. And then he had only nine against J- Johnson because Johnson's a guy that it, it can get up, can move around, you know, take him down again. But then he, but then he got back up again, but he was able to control him there and do some work. Like he only had like 80 strikes in that whole fight. You know, all three rounds and for 11 takedowns, that's not that much. Uh, whereas you got Jake Hadley, who's gonna, who's not as great get, with the get ups, but he's gonna keep fighting. He's a good movement. He does have that grapple on background as well. A lot of people don't know that because he doesn't use it because it's not as refined as his boxing background. It's just a little bit of secondary. He has two or three takedowns since coming into the UFC. He doesn't have much control time to go with it, but he's very quick with his hands. Great movement. You saw the knockout that he had last fight, and then you saw the body shots that were thrown against Candelario, who took uh, Hadley down, but then Hadley was able to converse against that and beat him in the striking department. I feel like it's gonna. Uh, this fight's going to take place uh, depend on who does what they want to do first. If Durden can take down Hadley, and continue to do that, and then it should be easy three rounds for Durden. Because like you said, he has great cardio with the wrestling. Wrestling cardio and striking cardio are two different things. You can have great wrestling cardio, but shit, striking cardio. It, it, yes, it sounds crazy, but it, it's a thing. He, he has yeah. great wrestling cardio, but his striking is limited to overhand wide power shots that he uses to try and knock his opponents out. That's what's kind of limited to. He, he can throw a jab once in a while and a leg kick, but it's mainly he's throwing the overhand shots, and then sometimes he uses it to close the distance to go duck on the inside and get his takedowns. Whereas Hadley, like we said, he can throw a jab, he can throw a hook, he can throw a body shot, a book cut, different types of looks with his striking, and then he can mix in a takedown or two just to throw people off of his boxing. And that's why I feel like he's the favorite in this one is because of the more uh, offensive uh, moves in his repertoire, not just a big wrestling background that Durden has that puts him as a big favorite in majority of his matchups because a lot of people can't deal with the constant pressure. 
But I think this is going to be a one that goes to decision. It might even go to split decision. And I'm going to lean towards Havy because I feel like he can do enough damage with his striking to slow down Durden to keep him from doing the constant takedowns. I think Havy will still get taken down three to four times. But I think the volume that he does will outweigh the control time and anything that the judges see from Durden because he's not as active with his uh, offensive side as Hadley will be. And we've seen a lot of fights. You can hold a guy down for 10 minutes, but if you don't do anything with it, another guy is throwing at you, they're going to lean towards the guy that's more active in that fight. Because if, if it's 80 to 10, but the guy with 80 strikes was taken down for 10 minutes, that 10 minutes is kind of nullified. So I'm going with Hadley by decision in this one. And I like... Minus 180, I feel like that's going to go down a little bit more because I see a lot of people going to Cody Durden with the wrestling. So I'm going to wait like a day or two, see where that line goes. Hopefully it goes down a little bit more. And then I'm going to attack the line, and I'm going to go with the over one and a half on this one. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I get the, the, the I guess the, the tempting to go with Durden because of the wrestling, but yeah. – I think it's it's he's going to take too much damage trying to hunt for those takedowns too early on uh, because Hadley's got great movement. He's got good stance work, and his hands are really fast. So yeah. I think Cody Dern's going to have to eat a lot of punches to get those takedowns. Uh, you know, he might get a couple, but at what cost, you know? And I think uh, over time that damage is going to accumulate, and it's going to be much easier for Hadley to take over, especially in the later rounds for sure. Yeah, and with with the Hadley knowing that Durden doesn't have that uh, averse amount of striking, and it's basically limited to just a couple of things, he's going to try and take advantage of it. I I expect to see a lot of body shots in this one. He's going to take the time to move around, hit him from different angles, hit him in the body, slow him down, mix in the leg kicks. I think they're just going to be cap kicks because he's going to play it safe there because he doesn't want Durden to catch his leg and to drive him down. And he's going to continually, continuously move, and that's going to be the big thing. Continuously move to not give Durden the same straight-ahead looks that he normally gets in his fights. So he doesn't can rush from a distance and try and just drive him back into the cage and drive him down. So, yeah, that's why I like Hadley in this one. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like Hadley's probably, like, his potential is around a 10 to 15 ranked fighter. I think yeah. if he keeps evolving, he's definitely top 10. But for where he's at right now, like uh, Mohamed Makayev is 11. But, you know, he's still on the upward rise. But he would be around like Tajir Lembekov and David Dvorak, Summer Deerji. Like, I think that that's about where yeah. his skill level is right now. Definitely above where Cody Durden is. I don't see Cody Durden getting ranked anytime soon, yeah. really. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got a men's welterweight matchup right, right. Be- between Carlston Harris going up against Jeremiah Wells in the welterweight division. Wells is the minus 170 favorite, and Carlston Harris is the plus 140 underdog. What are your thoughts on this fight? I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Harris, he's still kind of fairly new to the UFC. He seems pretty well-rounded. He's, he's a bit of a brawler, right? He's a little sloppy with his hands, but that does allow him to generate a decent amount of power. One of the things I, uh, I tell my guys when we're training and everything, uh, circular movement generates momentum. Uh, direct line shots generate power. 
Harris is more of the looping circular shot. So he generates a lot of momentum. So when it connects, it does do damage, but it's not super efficient. It leaves a lot of openings. Um, it seems pretty decent in the wrestling on the cage, although he likes to really kind of stand and trade. Um, I will say he's kind of a big guy for the division. He's pretty long, pretty lanky. But, I mean, Jeremiah Wells is an undefeated monster inside of the UFC for good reason. The guy's got crazy power in his hands. He is a bit brawlish, but I've noticed he is getting more technical as his fights go on. Uh, he does kind of like to swing, but he will set up those looping shots. He's not just going to throw them in isolation. I think that's how he's able to catch people so often and get all those knockouts. Um, he has good movement on the feet, so he's hard to hit. A moving target is way harder to, to you know, pin down than a, than a stationary one. And, of course, he has excellent wrestling as well. This guy's easily a top 10 quality fighter within the welterweights. I think, you know, he's going to have almost unlimited potential as long as he keeps on the track he's going, continues to evolve. This guy is going to be a big name in the welterweights, um, bigger than he already is. I think a lot of people, even ranked fighters, are, are pretty afraid of taking a fight up with Jeremiah Wells. Um, the only real issue he has right now that I think he needs to work on, he does get a little sloppy with the striking, like I said, with those looping shots. Uh, and, and it could kind of present a gas tank issue in the long run. Mostly he's finishing dudes really fast with all that power. But if you're putting everything you got into every shot, it drains your batteries real quick. So that's something he's going to have to work on for the long run. But against Harris, I think Harris, it looks like he's, you know, in, in time he could maybe be like, you know, 15 to 20 ranked fighter. But I think he's, I think he's outmatched here. Um, and it's really hard to bet against Jeremiah Wells, given his record, given his skills. I think Wells can either take this by knockout or by like a knockdown and then jump on his back to a submission real quick. Uh, but I think he's probably going to finish this in the first or second. Um, this is the only one where, you know, I would probably go under one and a half, maybe just because of his his track record. He finishes fast. It's always first or second. Um, yeah. That one, it could go either way. That's kind of the trick with it. Um but you could definitely be a lot safer with finishing inside the distance. Right now, the money line is pretty close, so it could be worth it to play on that. Um, especially right now, I think as we get closer and more people start going for wells, I think that gap is going to get wider, and eventually it's not really going to be worth getting the money line. So chase that now. Um, but yeah, that's that's mostly how I'd play this. Yeah, and you see, you look at the last fight that he had against Matthew Simmersberger, and that was a very true test for him. A guy that had more power than him was more accurate with that power. And he got stunned twice. But he was able to kind of like adjust his game plan, stop throwing his wide shots because that's he was throwing the wide shot. And then Matthew Semisberg would just go straight on in and hit him every time. And then he just adjusted to it and was able to stay within it because he had two uh, scenarios where he almost got finished, but he was able to recover get himself going, move around, buy himself time, and then he went right to the wrestling where he had six takedowns. So maybe you might see a little bit more of a oh, wrestling uh, attack this time around because when he uses that wrestling, he's very dominant with that. Uh, with oh. that. Every time he would go for a takedown, he was able to get it because he'd, he'd act like he was going with the with the left overhand and he'd just duck under, get, okay. catch Semmersberger swinging, and then he'd just drive him down and hold him on the mat because he has great uh, 
top guard, and he was able to just hold him, hold him, do a little bit of damage, hold him a little bit more. Whenever Semmersberger would move, he'd move with them, and he did a great job of keeping his position. And Carson Harris, he's a pretty good uh, striker. He's not much of a finisher. He does have a couple finishes the last five fights. And he, one thing that a lot of people don't know is he has a pretty decent uh, jiu-jitsu background. He, looks, he hunts for submissions. He likes to take the back. But I, I'm just with you on this one. I think he gets it done round one by knockout. I think the power is going to be a big thing here. He's going to push the pace. He's going to start out fast. I, I think the, the wrestling is going to outdo the jiu-jitsu side. Uh, I see Carlson Harris as a guy that gets taken down pretty easily. Uh, you look at the the one on the fights that he lost, of course, with Shabcat. He didn't do a great job of I mean, Shabcat, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, but he didn't do a good job of uh, blocking his face. And Jeremiah yeah. Wallace is going to be a guy that's just going to swing wide, and those are going to have a good uh, connection weight on uh, Carlson Harris. And Jeremiah Wallace is going to sh- give him different looks of going up and then driving down or acting like he's about to drive down and then swing wide. He's going to show the different angles with him. So I see this being a first-round knockout. I like the under one and a half as well on this one because I think it will be done in the first round, and if it's not, at least in the top half of the second round. If you look at just the, the background of Jeremiah Wells and his fights, you would see the same thing. A lot of his fights end early except for the last one, but with, with, that was a true test of him uh, gutting it out and coming back from behind. But if you feel like maybe he'll start out slow, just like he did against Matthew Semmersberger, then you can do, go live with this one. But then you're kind of playing with the issue that Jeremiah Wells has with his gas tank. He has one of the best gas tanks, and that's another reason he went for the takedowns as well is because he has a great – uh, gas tank with this crap one, not so much with the striking. So it's like you're battering yourself on that one there. So I would pray, uh, Jeremiah Wills, I'd pray the money line right now before it gets any higher. I'll look at the under one and a half. And I'll also look at the by KO, TKO, or DQ prop there because you're definitely going to get plus odds on those ones as well. For sure, for sure. This one's pretty open and shut, I feel like. <laughs> Let's this. move on to the next fight on the prelims. Before we get to that, once again, if you're tuning in for the first time to the channel, please smash the like button down below and hit us up in the comment section with your thoughts and predictions for UFC Nashville. And we're doing Ben odds with this as well. So let us know what are some of your favorite prop bets for this weekend are going to be. But let's move on to this Federate matchup. We got Billy Quarantino, a.k.a. Billy Q, going up against Demon the Leech Jackson. Uh, Billy Q is the minus 175 favorite. Damon Jackson's the plus 140 underdog. What are your thoughts on this matchup? This one's kind of interesting because these guys are kind of each other's weaknesses. You know, like you got Billy Q. He's a veteran of the sport at this point, but he's definitely a brawler. He's got the power in his hands, but he likes to keep his hands down near his balls. He keeps himself open all the time, and as a result, he takes a ton of damage in his fights. Like His face looks like a piece of meat as soon as he walks out of the cage, either through swelling or just the amount of blood that he's bleeding. 
um, you know, versus Jackson. He's primarily a strong grappler. That's really where most of his wins have come by. 15 submissions versus his four knockouts and three decisions. So you pretty much know what his game plan is going to be. And these these two game plans kind of oppose each other. Like you got Jackson, who's going to want to take it to the ground pretty quick. He sometimes is okay with standing and trading, but I think between the two of them, Billy Q is probably a little more technical, probably a little bit uh, better power just from sheer experience, you know, doing that particular activity alone. Uh, but I think when it goes to the mat, it's all Jackson. Um, Billy Q usually has, you know, pretty good takedown defense as like kind of an extension of a fairly decent wrestling ability that he's acquired over the years. Um, but I don't think it's better than Jackson's. And this this makes it kind of a very easy road to uh, victory. Well, not easy, but more direct road to victory for Jackson, I think. Because really all he has to do is do what he does best. Close distance, get to the cage, and just start hunting for those takedowns. Even if he doesn't find them at first, he's still putting uh, points on the scorecards. When he does tend to find them, that's when he really gets to work. He you know, gets on top, finds the back, and then he starts hunting for those submissions very active in the ground game as far as looking for a finish there. Um, I think the only thing that could possibly stop him is that Billy Q is, regardless of the fact that he takes a ton of damage, he is able to keep a pretty crazy pace until, you know, it's, it's kind of roll of the dice. Either he breaks or his opponent does. Whoever tires out first, that tends to be the one who gets the short end of the stick here. Um, but at the same time, I feel like most of Billy Q's stamina is in the stand-up. He's very durable. He's willing to eat one to give one. But if you force him into like, you know, a 15-minute grappling match, I think he's going to tire out a little bit faster, especially if he's constantly having to problem solve the way that Damon Jackson is going to be making him think on his feet uh, when he's in those grappling exchanges. It's not going to be just hold him against the cage or lay and pray. No, he's going to be constantly having to find his way out of things, constantly fighting to get back to his feet. And that all costs energy. Um, so, I mean, I could see this going the way of Billy Q catching a knockout on Jackson. It would have to be probably in the second round when he's still kind of fresh. He's taking those reads. Uh, but I think it's probably going to be easier for Jackson to hunt for those takedowns, get Billy Q down, just grind him out until he reaches the end of his gas tank, and then probably take the submission, maybe, maybe a late submission in the third round. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of this will come down to kind of how that first round and a half turns out because we'll be able to see who's primarily in the driver's seat in this fight. Um, usually Billy Q is a little bit slow to start. So I think Damon Jackson might have a stronger first round there. Um, but you never know. You never know. It always depends on which version of that fighter shows up to fight night. Right. Uh, but just because I feel like the, the job for, uh, Jackson is a little bit easier in terms of his game plan is a little easier to execute because he, there's more room for mistakes. Billy Q has to fight more of a perfect fight than Jackson. So I would go Jackson by decision. If you're feeling confident, maybe take that profit for submission. Um, but yeah, if you want to think of it like uh, Jackson versus Arjuleta, I think is kind of a blueprint for how this fight is going to go. Um, in that yeah. fight, Jackson got caught a couple times. He got wobbled, almost finished once. But he was able to power through, just force the wrestling situations, recover, and ultimately grind out a hard decision. I think that's probably what we're looking at here. So I think it's uh, pretty pretty no-brainer over one and a half rounds. Both of these guys really don't have very many first-round finishes. Even Jackson's uh, submission finishes tend to come a little later in the fight, so he'd probably be pretty safe there. 
Um, take the plus money that they're giving you on Damon Jackson early right now before that, that gap separates. Or, of course, if Damon Jackson gets a strong first, then it's probably going to swing the odds away from him. Uh, so those seem a little volatile here. Uh, but if you want to also bet, bet on this going the distance, that could also be a pretty safe bet. There's a lot of things looking into the, into this fight that has me worried on both sides. First, you yeah. got Damon Jackson. He's been knocked out by Danny Ige. He got not, knocked out by Ilya Tapuria, which is, of course, he got submitted I mean, by Yancey. Tapura, though, you he know. got Yancey, submitted by Yancey Medeiros, who's not even in the UFC anymore. And yeah. he's had some uh, wins that have been well, but it seems to lose two guys with uh, with good striking. They can put a lot of output and then add a little bit of power to it, which sounds like Billy Q, uh, where Billy Q can get off of a lot of uh, output, just like you said. One of the things he does is he doesn't block his face as much because it allows him easy access to uh, striking on his opponent. But then on the other side, you got Billy Q. You, you look at him and He's been able to be taken down a lot in fights. You look at the Gavin Tucker fight, he got taken down oh, yeah. seven times. You got uh, Hernandez, he got taken down twice, which he did win that because he had two. And then there's yeah. other fights within that where he got taken down twice here, twice there. He's not held uh, down that much. I think Gavin Tucker only had five minutes of control time, but he was able to utilize that with a lot of action on the mat from a striking standpoint. We don't know how uh, Billy Q is going to react getting taken down by Damon Jackson, more of a jiu-jitsu artist, where he's going to be not hunting for striking. He's going to be hunting for a position to submit him, to take his neck, and look for different spots to do that because that's Damon Jackson's specialty there. Uh, and, but then on the other side, we got to see how Damon Jackson's going to do uh, defending the strike into the head because he he just got annihilated by Dan, uh, Dan Ige in that matchup. Oh. And within the striking game, Damon Jackson, he, he can throw a decent jab and then a, a, a decent overhand strikes. That's about it. He utilizes a lot of that to get inside the clinch. Whereas Billy Q does a lot of movement. He has a lot of wide angles of striking. He, he's always high output in fights. He's not necessarily going to fin finish you. And if you look at some of the, the stats here, he has – yeah, he's kind of win-loss record yeah. for a while now. Yeah. yeah, he loses by KO to Barbosa. He won by KO to Hernandez. He lost a decision to Barbosa in a great fight. Uh, both oh. had over 350 strikes. He beat uh, Benitez by KO late in that fight. That was pretty back and forth. He lost to Tucker. He beat Nelson by KO very late. He beat Spike Carlisle who had three takedowns on him, and then he had two. And then he beat Kilburn by triangle choke and Kamel Kirk by KO uh, punches. And a lot of his KOs and finishes are late in the fight, round, late in round two, beginning of round three. So he he gets he's a slow starter, and he gets going. And I what I've seen from Dean Jackson is he starts out quick, and then he slows down. So it's like – if you're going to play from both angles, I can <laughs> yeah. see a thing where Damon Jackson's path to victory is a submission very early in the fight, whereas Billy Q, I can see him finishing uh, Damon Jackson later when he ramps up and then he starts to slow down. My thing here is I'm going to pick Billy Q because I have seen him 
can take it down, recover from it, and then uh, get his game going with uh, when he fought Hernandez and Spike Carlisle. And then it seems to make him want to wrestle a little bit. Uh, I've seen him get in fights where he's gotten four takedowns in this one, two in this one, two in this one. And he only uses it when he's in uh, when he when he needs to. Like if he's in like a predicament and he needs to get out of it, he he, he right. digs to the to the grapple and, and then he takes his opponent down if it's more of a 50-50. That might be a thing that plays a factor into this one to kind of avoid the jujitsu. Maybe he takes them down and then he gets up. And just to right, get the right. position and then to break things up to a stand-up fight. But I think that output, high output is going to be a big factor. I think he's going to land too much for Damon Jackson's grapple on the do a thing because he's not active on the ground, minus the submission uh, attempts. And I could see Billy Q just doing enough to defend the takedowns, somehow get up and land a lot of shots that are very potent uh, to Damon Jackson. I'm going to go with a round three uh, knockout for Billy Q. I think it gets it done like he always does. I like the minus 175 here. I think you got to get it while you can because a lot of people have been jumping on him in the last couple of days. I like the over one and a half because I think Damon Jackson is going to do a great job with the grappling early. And that's where Billy Q is going to have to just fight that and then be patient in the fight to take over in, in round two and three. And if you want to, definitely take a chance at the live bet because, like I said, with Damon Jackson being a quicker starter than Billy Q, you might be able to get that minus 175 at more even odds after round one. Yeah, I mean, these guys, like I said, they're each other's weaknesses in a lot of yeah. ways. So this is a very volatile matchup. This this really is kind of anything could happen. Um yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I usually tend to favor the wrestlers a little bit more just because of how wrestling tends to work, like its mechanics. Yeah. As long as you can get close, you essentially create your own world, whereas striking requires the opposite. Usually you need to maintain distance. You're in a finite space. You're in a, you're in a cage. There's yeah. a certain point at which you, you don't have space anymore. So that's, that's mainly why I'm looking at Jackson is because all he really has to do is just press. And I've seen Damian Jackson eat shots just to get close. And I think he can do it again. That's why I pointed out the Argeletta fight. He had a lot of shots in that one, but he just, he kept going. He kept walking forward and he found, you know, the edge of the edge of the ring. He found that cage and he found those takedowns. It will ultimately deter, it will be decided by like how well Billy Q can maintain that distance. And if he can make Jackson respect his power, which for a wrestler is hard. Like wrestlers can take a lot. And like Jackson has kind of like a, jiu-jitsu heavy but like he's picked up the wrestling as he's gone along but the dude can definitely take a shot i don't think he's good it's gonna take a lot for him to back off especially if he knows that's the way to win i think he's just gonna be a dog and just keep going so i think billy q in order to really get some momentum he's gonna have to start fast and he's gonna have to start hard to make jackson respect that power and create that gap so that he can really get a striking going uh because i think if it if it if it's you know, constantly get down, get up, get down, get up, get down, get up. That will yeah. drain his batteries. He does have pretty good wrestling. I'd be interested to see how he does, like, wrestling for wrestling. I feel like Jackson yeah. is probably a little more refined, but, you know, Billy Q has done some crazy shit in the past, so you never know. Maybe he just, like, busts out some shit we haven't seen before. And if you're following the pattern right now, uh, it's lose, win, lose, win, lose against Edson Barbosa. So he's slated to win, I guess, if he maintains <laughs> yeah. the pattern, so... 
I don't know. Maybe that helps boost your confidence a little there. But yeah. man, this one, this one's this one. It's, I'd be nervous about putting some money on. It, it, you know? It's definitely tough, but I, I like the fact that it's a very high volume from Billy Q. It's not like mm-hmm. okay, he might get fifty strikes. You just look at the past one that he had with right. Ige. Ige had one hundred and ninety strikes, and then he had one hundred and sixty-five. Mm-hmm. So it was just the the battle of a guy hitting more yeah. with them because it was going to be more of a striking battle. But he's yeah. known for landing a lot and then the gun it through uh, to three rounds. And he can go for all three rounds. It's just that yeah. uh, Ige was the quicker guy at the end. I'm not saying Billy Q uh, has bad cardio. It's just that one of these guys' cardio is going to have an effect on the fight in high output. And then it was his by a little bit. And it was still a close fight. I, I, I felt like it was more like a split decision type of situation. Because a lot of the Ige's strikes in that one were, I think, in round three, whereas Billy yeah. Fontino had a, a quick start in the beginning, and which was kind of odd because he's usually a slow start on fights. But I could definitely see it going either way. I just I like the cardio of Fontino better than Jackson, and I think the high output could play a factor in negating uh, the takedowns of Jackson because he's not accurate. I mean, he's not active on the ground he's active in looking for submissions he's, he just doesn't throw a lot when he's on the mat mm-hmm. and i think judges look at that a lot and they don't like the fact that you're not active so you could take him down for three rounds like i said in the, the, the last fight and if a quarantino throws a lot and has like a 20 uh, punch uh, advantage the the judges are going to go with the guy that's uh striking over the, the guy that just lays down and holds his opponent on the mat it's just how the judges have been going lately. Yeah. I mean, also, if Saul Diamato's in there, that could fuck the whole thing up. Like, <laughs> that too. God, I, uh, yeah. Do not let's, like that, bitch. Let's move on to the next fight on the prelims. Uh, we got a bantamweight battle between Rayoni Barcelos versus Kyler Phillips. Uh, Rayoni is the plus 145 underdog, and Phillips is the minus 175 favorite uh what are your thoughts on this fight no i think phillips is kind of an underrated fighter because he's you know he's a relatively newcomer uh he is a little too flashy for his own good sometimes but he is a decent striker he's got you know good movement i think he can bring power when he needs to he's very good at changing gears he can go from striking to wrestling to jujitsu pretty flawlessly like he's he's really rounded out as a fighter I still don't like that he keeps throwing those stupid spinning kicks for like no reason. There's very specific context in which you throw a spinning kick. He, I think he just does it for the highlight reel, which that's going to get him in trouble for sure. Um, but is, is, you know, true to, true to form. His first round is always very full of activity. He's got crazy output in the first. Historically, he has slowed down. Uh, he has a bit of a gas tank issue in that department. Although in his last fight uh, against Rojo, uh, Marcel Rojo, he actually maintained that pace pretty well throughout the entire three rounds. Uh, I think that one he got, uh, yeah, it was a submission triangle in the very third round. It was kind of early in the third, but he wasn't slowing down. And a big part of the reason he got that triangle is he was able to keep his cardio there because I think what Rojo was trying to do was let him kind of gas him out and then, or let him gas himself out and then, you know, kind of go harder in the later rounds. But I don't think he was expecting Kyler Phillips to still be there in round three and still be doing all that activity, still be doing all that output. Um, So that to me shows a lot of evolution. 
Um, I think it is worth noting he hasn't been in the octagon in about a year and a half. So there is kind of a wild card. What has he been doing in that year and a half? If he's been training and, and you know, maintaining at the very least, maybe growing a little bit, then I think we're just going to see a better version of Kyler Phillips than we saw against Rojo. If he's been sitting on the couch, you know, eating Twinkies, then, you know, we might see more of the old Phillips where he has good first round and then he kind of really tapers off after that. And, you know, that that lack of stamina kind of gets him in trouble just like it did against uh, the Paeva, uh, Holly and Paeva. That one ended in a close decision. I think it was a majority decision, uh, but it was mostly because he just couldn't keep up with the pace. Now, Barcelos, um, he he doesn't have like a super long record inside of the UFC. He is coming off of a string of losses. Uh, he had in his last four fights, three of those were uh, two decisions and one knockout. The knockout was Umar Namagamadoff. Kind of makes sense. The other two losses were uh, Victor Henry and Timur Valiev. Timur Valiev, of course, being a very good, you know, top control, high pressure fighter. Kind of makes sense how he was able to kind of ground out Barcelos. Uh, Victor Henry, I'm not sure what his excuse is there. He did beat Trevin Giles, but it was by decision. Or Tra I'm sorry, uh, Trevin Jones by decision. Um, I saw that fight. I didn't see anything super impressive. I think he's too focused on the counter game. And he is, has more of a flat-footed Muay Thai style. And that greatly decreases his output. Um, having that against a guy like Phillips, who has a lot of output, I think is not good for the scorecards. Yes, you could find that big counter shot, put him in a lot of trouble, and maybe finish him. But, you know, I, I think that's that's a lot to hope for versus Phillips, who is going to be, you know, moving a lot, putting out a lot of motion, putting a lot of volume, giving him different looks. I think that's going to be a lot for Bacillus to read and focus on. Um, and he's going to fall behind in the cards, I think. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of looking at Phillips's evolution and what we've seen lately. Uh, because, yeah, the, the holes in his game have definitely been there for most of his career. But based on that last fight, I want to hope that he's been, you know, doing what he's supposed to do to maintain that. Maybe even get a little bit better. So this one is, is again, it's kind of hard to bet on just because that gap of that one, one and a half years. We don't know what he's going to be like because right now Kyler Phillips is the wild card. There's a reason he's the favorite because if he shows up, he's going to he dominate. Is. But if he doesn't, he'll he'll gas out and then Barcelos will grind him out in the later rounds. So it'd probably be safe to go decision. Decision could go either way. I am kind of leaning towards Phillips. Definitely over one and a half. You could probably bet this one going the distance seeing as Barcelos isn't like a big knockout guy. He's more of like a you know, counter striker, which tends to lead to more decision victories than knockouts, unless you're like Israel Adesanya, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, Barcelos does like to get to the ground. He likes to get dirty. But I think Kyler Phillips's activity and his wrestling is probably going to be good enough to at least stall him out. Um, again, if he shows up, that's kind of the big caveat here. He's got to show up to the fight, you know. Um, but yeah, this one I could see going either way by decision. Yeah, looking at Phillips, uh, he has three canceled fights in the last year and a half. That's why he hasn't fought. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to fight Jack Shore. Jack Shore got hurt. Then he was supposed to uh, – where is it? And then he was supposed to fight – I know the last one was, was Jack Shore. It was Rafael Sunsal. That's where Kyra Phillips uh, got hurt. And then it was Cyan Normagomedov uh, today. I mean, on uh, – Saturday, and then Simon Normagameda backed out, and then Randy Barcelos took this fight on short notice. 
not like short, yeah, short, I mean, but like a month. Means he's probably been yeah. training. Like he had to yeah. be in training camp for those fights. So yeah, so on, on on a month's notice, so it's not as bad. He at least has a month to train for it, which yeah. is still yeah. a lot of time for him. So it's not too bad of it. But you got Kyle Phillips, who's more about starting out fast. He puts a lot in that round one. He's an explosive striker from fighting from a distance. He has that capoeira. Uh, he has that kickboxing style. He's good with his hands. It, he has great movement. He throws a lot of leg kicks uh, from different angles. Uh, like you said, you see a lot of that with him. And he pushes the pace. And then the only thing is the weakness is he's had an issue with Tiring out after like the two, uh, the, the two three minute mark of round two, and then into round three, he starts to slow down. That's kind of what beat him in the Raleigh and Paiva fight, even though I still think that he should have at least drew the fight because of the 10 8 first round. But uh, then you have Barcelos, who uh, on paper should be able to compete with them, uh, but just like you said, he's a guy that either shows up or he doesn't. He does have a uh, decent power in his hands. He has that uh, Muay Thai uh, background. He, he has good striking, but it's like he doesn't put the pen to paper uh, half the time when he's in the octagon. And it, like whether he's distracted or not, he just doesn't put the uh, the performance out there. You look at the last couple of fights for Barcelos. Uh, Umar Nurmagomedov finished him in the first round where he just looked horrendous. He did beat Trevin Jones uh, by the decision where he got the knockdown, but he was kind of more content on, like you said, countering. He got a decision by Victor Henry. He gave up over 180 strikes there. And then Timor Valiev, who is on the ultimate fighter right now because he lost his position. He, he's looking really good, by the way. He's, yeah. he's coming back something fierce. Yeah. Uh, Rainey Barcelos had two knockdowns in that one. And 65 strikes, and he still lost by a majority draw. And then at the fight before that, he beat Khalid Tafa. And that was kind of a stretch of five fights that he had winning to start out in the UFC, where he was showcasing his power, getting the knockdowns and fights and utilizing that range. And he just lost it to guys that are a good grappler or a combination of grappling and striking, and he's just kind of lost his confidence. And I think even though he lost uh, the one fight to Paiva, I think Phillips still has that confidence. He, he just hasn't fought because of injuries and situations yeah. that he can't control. I think he's going to come in there, utilize that distance, use the leg kicks to keep him at range. He's going to throw those explosive strikes at Barcelos, and he's a, a guy that's more about volume yeah, then Barcelos is. I still think it could go to decision because Barcelos can take a hit at, at a lot of times. A lot of his losses are by decision. And I think the Umar and Mike Mano form was just one of those uh, ones that just happens because Umar is a big time prospect. Yeah, he's kind who's going yeah. to be challenging <laughs> for the title any 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 month now. And mm-hmm. I think that Phillips wins round one. Round two, you might see Barcelos take over because Phillips might use round two to kind of like gain a little bit of that energy back, manage himself to see if he can still win the round because that's what happened in round two against Orojo. Like he kind of – he didn't take round two off, but he was still more active. It's just that he 
didn't go balls out like either round one. Yeah. And Rojo was better of, at managing his pace. Yeah. That's the key, I think, that he figured yeah. out. And Rojo just made the decision to let him do it. And he lost round two and then built, spud back up to, to four strength at round three and then just got it got him there. So I see a little bit of the same thing. Phillips just has to watch out for one of those big-time shots from Barcelos, especially in round three. But I'm going to go with Phillips by late submission or by decision. I think he might sneak in a, uh, a rare naked choke here because that's a part of his game that people don't really think about is the fact that he can uh, grapple pretty well. He just hasn't had to use it as much in the past, but he's utilized it when he's had to. He's, he just prefers to stand up from a distance and throw those high-octane strikes that get people uh, talking about uh, about the fight. So I like the I like the money line there. I'm personally not going to go out there because with these two guys, you got one guy a year off uh, in Phillips and then a the guy, guy in Barcelos who just got rocked in his last fight. So you don't know how he's going to come in from a confidence standpoint. So I do like Phillips. I like the over and a one and a half line there, just like you said. And uh, anything else, I, I might think decision would be a safe one. And then maybe just watch it live. See see how, how it's going after round one and attack it live if you feel like you want to make a bet on it. Yeah. I feel like maybe going the distance might be another good one. Just because Kyler Phillips, um, I think it's since he entered the UFC, let's see. Yeah, he's he's been kind of mostly decision. He's had yeah. one, two decisions, and then uh, one KO and one submission. So, you know, it, it kind of depends because especially like early in his career, those uh, knockouts and submissions had to come out. Uh, like, yeah, that one knockout he got was in the second round, like 44 seconds in. So he got through yeah. the first and then managed to just eke it out. Um, and then the other ones, he did manage to take the decision, but these – like Gil, uh, Gabriel Silva, Song Yadong, uh, these are much, much closer just because he did kind of peter out in those later rounds. I have confidence that I don't think he's going to do that this time. Uh, but, you know, it, all it takes is for one of these guys to have a bad night, and, you know, we could see a very different story playing out. So I want to be confident in Phillips, but it's kind of hard just because he's only done it once. Yeah. Once he does it twice, he's established a pattern. Now you can build confidence in that. That's why. It's kind of tough for me to go either way on that decision. That's why the only thing I feel confident on is maybe it goes the distance, maybe that one and a half rounds, and that's about it. Yep. Let's move on to the main card. The first fight that we have on the main card is an immense lightweight matchup between Ignacio Bahamundes, who's going up against Ludwig Klein. You got Bahamundes, the minus 200 favorite, and then you got Klein, the plus 165 underdog. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, man, I, I like Bahamundas for this one. He's a big boy for the division. He's very tall, very long, and he's actually, like, very strong. Like, he kind of looks like a bit of a beanpole because of how much weight he has to cut to make that weight class, but, I mean, he's actually very strong. He's got excellent takedown defense, not just from a technical standpoint. Also, being that big and long makes you kind of hard to take down, um, but the big thing is he's got good kickboxing, I like how he mixes it up. He goes pretty evenly head, body to the legs. Like he's constantly making you second guess, making you think. And then he sets you up for those big power shots, which he does have a decent bit of power in his hands. Um, I think sometimes, especially early, like in round one, 
he's a little bit too focused on the counter game. Like you kind of got to rattle him a little bit. And then he's like, all right, it's time to get going. And then once he gets going, you know, that's where his output, his volume really comes into play. Uh, Klein, I think is mostly a decision fighter at this point because of his wrestling. Um, he's an okay striker, but he is one of those guys who will stand for a little bit. And then once he figures out he's outclassed, he kind of wants to take it to the cage, maybe get it in a clinch situation, start hunting for those takedowns. But like he's, he's got a pretty big disadvantage in the, in the size department here. I think his job is going to be way harder than he's used to considering how big Bahamundas is how much reach he has. He can touch Klein before Klein can close that distance and he can put the power to him pretty good. Um, I think even if Klein does get those clinches, I think it's going to be really hard to actually get him, get Bahamundas down and hold him there. Um, Bahamundas is also pretty good at just getting off the cage when he doesn't want to be there. Um, he can also kind of mix it up with the knees and elbows, although that's not really his go-to game. Um, and he's also got a pretty decent submission game. He doesn't use it very often just because he usually gets it done with the striking. But when he needs it, yeah, he can he can pull out a submission. So if Ludwig Klein gets him to the ground and gets sloppy, there's always that chance he could make a mistake, fall into something that, you know, is, is you know, there's no there's no coming back from. So because there's so many options here for Bahamundes with his volume, with his ability to stay on the feet, if it does go to the ground, he can problem solve or he could potentially pull out a submission. When you have an, uh, a fighter with that many options, I think that bodes pretty well. So I would uh, be looking at Bahamundes by decision or depending on how that first round goes, if Ludwig Klein is accumulating a lot of damage, that might be a good time to hop on like maybe a KO uh, prop bet, maybe for the late second, early third round, something like that. But if it's just looking like Klein can't get past the hands, he's getting touched up with the jab, maybe ca catching some crosses, then it's probably going to be more of a low output fight for Bahamundes relative to what he can usually do. So that's why I'd feel more confident in the decision. I think this is definitely going to go over one and a half. Bahamundes usually takes the first round to kind of take his reads. Like I said, play that counter game and it does slow him down a little bit. Um, but I think uh, if you're looking for other profits, uh, like I said, maybe play that KO based on what's happening, or you could just bet for it to go the distance. That might also be safe again. Depends on what kind of output Bahamundes is putting in that first round. Uh, but yeah, I, I think this one, I could see why he's the favorite. Um, I would, I mean, the money line, it's a little tricky. It's kind of wide right now, but I think if you don't jump on it now, it's only going to get bigger. Having said that, um, the ESPN odds did have it at minus 210 uh, versus plus 175. So it did come down just a little bit, uh, yep. but I don't think that downward motion is going to keep going necessarily, I think. People are pretty high on this Bohemundis kid for good reason. So maybe jump on it now. I'm, I'm not sure it's getting any better. Yeah, yeah I, he throws a lot of different leg kicks, which is his specialty. And he has those long legs. You look at the height and reach advantage in this one. You got 6'3", yeah. <laughs> to 5'7", and then 75 and a half reach to 72. So Klein cuts into that reach a little bit, but just the height is going to play a big factor in the leg kick game of Bob Mondays because you know he's going to look to strike from a distance, throw a lot of those leg kicks uh, to the leg and to the body, and he likes to throw that high leg kick every now and then to his opponent. And Ludwig Klein is a type of guy that is a counter striker. He likes to use the counters to attack his opponents. It's very hard to get inside of him, but 
if he can hit him from a distance and keep on moving around, that's where you'll have success. Jai Herbert started to have success with that, and then he got hit with the with the point deduction, and that's what led to the tie because Klein kept on getting inside and then grappling up with him, and then he took Herbert down a couple of times, but then he didn't have much success of his own getting uh, the striking together, whereas Herbert got into a groove and he was able to get going, and then he just got killed by that late uh, point deduction that led to him uh, drawing with Ludwig Klein. Biomundis is going to be a more explosive striker. He knows how to mix those uh, crazy leg kicks with his hands. He has a decent jab, decent cross. But it's going to be 60% leg kicks that he's going to throw at his opponent. He's going to constantly keep the distance with that. And it's going to be him who's going to be dictating the pace of the fight with those leg kicks because he's not going to allow Klein to get close. He's just going to chop away, chop away with those leg kicks, throw the side T kicks at times that keep him there. And it's not going to allow Klein to get going. And because of that, I think it's going to be a decision fight by Bob Mendes. I could see a 29 to 28 to where Bob Mendes just throws a lot of leg kicks, does enough uh, to win the, win the rounds. Not much of a crazy damage to either opponent. Maybe Klein could get into him late in round three when he gets desperate and he needs to rush in to get inside and to get some offense going. But I think Bob Mendes controls the pace, lands at a, like 30 to 40 leg kicks. He has good movement. And he's going to avoid anything that Ludwig try, Klein tries to get going. And I love the, I love the over two and a half um, uh, prop bet on here. I think uh, that is great because I don't think that Bob Mundus is going to knock out Klein because it, it takes a lot to knock out Ludwig Klein. He's very good at dodging big strikes and to counter. And then on the other side, I think Klein's going to have a big trouble getting inside of Bob Mundus because of those long legs. So, I'm going with Bahamundas by decision. I really like the over two and a half line uh, line there, and that's about it. Maybe attack the uh, the live odds line, depending on who gets started and how you're feeling about the fight. But this is more of a one where I got to see what's going to happen early in the first couple minutes before I even uh, decide to jump on it live or not. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be fun to watch for sure. Yeah. Bahamundas is is a Exciting fighter to watch, which is why I think he's got a, a good career ahead of him in this, yeah. this sport. Let's move on to the next fight oh, on man. the main card. We got a light <laughs> heavyweight matchup between Tanner Bruiser versus Alexa Kamor. Bruiser comes in the minus 180 favorite. Kamor comes in the plus 155 underdog. And this will be his first fight back in two or three years. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on this fight? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. This is the fight. Like, I don't really give a shit about. <laughs> like, this is this is not really my cup of tea. Both of these guys are are not really very impressive. They like Tanner Bozer for sure. Looks like he's on his way out. Um, what's he lost? Like his last four fights, I think. Let me look. Let's see. He has lost. Uh oh yeah. Out of his last five fights, he has only won one of them, and it was against yeah. OSP. Who yep. you know at that point OSP was was pretty much done with his career. Um, yeah, no, T- Tanner Bozer is pretty much a one trick pony in a lot of ways. Um, he has a susceptibility to strong wrestlers and being taken down, which means he's you know one of the older generation heavyweights. 
Uh, he's a big boy swinging hammers. I know he moved down to light heavyweight, possibly to get like a strength and size advantage. It doesn't really seem to have changed much, if anything. Uh, Ian Kutsalaba made pretty quick work of him in one round. So, you know, it didn't seem like uh, it didn't seem like the, the transition down to light heavy is yielding the results he wants. And then uh, Camor, like you said, he's coming off of a two and a half, almost three year uh, break. Uh, and from what I recall, when he was here, he wasn't really doing super spectacular. Yeah, he was coming off of a two fight losing streak against William Knight and uh, Nikolai Nigger. Oh, Jesus. I can't Nigaru Nigamuru yeah that guy yeah I can't, can't Nigarumano yeah that one there's too many vowels in that one <laughs> but yeah I think neither of these guys is really anything special um, with Kamori he's a little bit more durable he can definitely take some pretty serious shots and keep going um, he's not a you know super big power guy until you hurt him a little bit then he'll start swinging. Uh, versus being more the technical guy, he'll turn into more of the brawler. Um, but then he gets tired, and I think that's kind of what's catching him is that his gas tank runs out. Because once you hurt him and he knows, like, oh, it's go time, he starts throwing everything he's got into every punch, and then, you know, he just burns himself out, which that's kind of what Tanner Bozer does too. So, you know, I think this is going to be one of the older, you know, old-school big boy swinging hammer style fights. Um, I think considering that, Kamura has been on a long break, and at least Bozer has been fighting. I think that could maybe be enough to give Bozer a small edge here. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to come down to like, you know, who can get the lucky shot because both of these guys have that I'll eat one to give one style of stand up striking. I don't see either guy really having a strong wrestling threat here. Both of them can do a little wrestling, but it's not like a central point of their game. So, I mean, if we're comparing power against power, I would say Bozer has a small power advantage here. So, I mean, you could, uh, you know, potentially look at this as Bozer getting a KO probably later, maybe in the second round, I think. Um, but yeah, because either guy has that puncher's chance, yeah. I just lean towards Bozer because he is kind of the heavyweight coming down. So he is a little bigger. He has a strength advantage against the guy who took a long break and does accumulate a lot of damage in his fights because he will eat one to give one. And I think if that's the case, then the guy with slightly more power is going to, you know, accumulate or give damage at a better rate. And, you know, if Kumor is accumulating damage too quickly, uh, along with his gas tank issue, I think that's just not going to be a good combination for a long fight. Um, so, yeah, Bozer by KO. I'd say probably under two and a half would be the safer one just because we are looking at big boys swinging hammers here. Um, yeah, the, I, the live odds are, yeah, it's, it's kind of a biggish spread. Maybe you want to jump on that. Maybe you don't. Um, I think it might be safer to play finishing inside the distance, uh, but yeah. you might just have to play the live odds on this one because, again, puncher's chance means it could go either way. I'm just playing the odds based on, you know, the slight advantage in the power and Camor's uh, uh, gas tank issue combined with the long break. I think that's not going to do as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to keep it short on this one. Tanner Bruiser has good cardio. He He's one of those big uh, uh, heavyweights that we're utilizing the, the kickboxing range. Didn't showcase too much of that power as much because he was throwing a lot of leg kicks and then he would counter with strikes at times. But it was pretty decent in, in, when, in clinch up. 
and that's why you didn't see a lot of finishes for him except for against uh, uh, Vincent Pru. And then it got Alexa Kamora coming off of a, a two, three-year layoff. He's more of a guy that likes to stand inside the pocket and tra- trade and bang he, a lot, too much at times, and it was susceptible to be knocked out because of it. He's just going to stand in front of you and throw and not really block too much. So I'm going with Tanner Bozer in this one. I think he gets back in the wing column. He is susceptible yeah. to getting hit, though, by Kamora because Kamora isn't afraid to stand there and trade with you. So there is that chance that Kamora could land a shot if Bozer isn't smart enough to move out of the way or block anything that he's thrown at. But I just feel like Bozer and his uh, advantages with fighting more and fighting the better competition, moving down the lightweight and being the better striker, I favor him here. So I'm going to go round two knockout as well. I could see uh, this one going to decision because he doesn't have as much power. But I feel like with that move down the lightweight, you might see that power pop back up. Uh, with him being the bigger guy with the bigger hands, and it might surprise us with how much power that he can have because he got hit very early against Ian Kutalaba, and that's kind of a weird fight that got booked there. Like he gets moved down, and even though Kutalaba was on their losing streak, it was against better competition in that top 10 of the light heavyweight division. So it kind of was like masks. By that, like you, you didn't think of that because of the losing streak. So, I think Tanner Bruiser gets it done round two. And with with this, with anything else, I'm gonna stay away from a lot with this one just because this one screams upset. If anything, where, where Kamora could get it, I just feel like if he shows up, Tanner Bruiser should get it done. And I'd rather just wait and, and bet it live because if he's losing, I feel like he can come back and win. Compared to Alexa Kamora, we don't know that much because he's been away for so long. We don't know what condition he's going to come in here. He could come in here and be a totally different fighter, or he could come in here and be the same guy that we expect him to be. We just don't know. That's why I give like zero shits about this fight. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be particularly yeah. interesting. <laughs> Let's move on to the next fight that we have for you. We got four fights left on this. Uh, on this uh, UFC national card, we got a featherweight matchup here between Gavin Tucker going up against Diego Lopez. Tucker is the plus 110 underdog, whereas Diego Lopez is the minus 135 favorite. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this one's another one where it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen. I mean, you got Lopez. Um, when you look at his record, he's actually a pretty impressive guy. Uh, he has, let's see, 11 submissions, eight knockouts, and two decisions. His losses mostly come by decision, which means he's a pretty durable guy. Um, but the leagues he's fighting out of aren't particularly, you know, awfully competitive. He fights out of Lux Fight League. I see a couple of fights with Fury FC. Um, that's about it. Like, Fury's a little bit bigger. I haven't even heard of Lux. So it could be that the the impressiveness of his you know resume comes from the fact that you know he is a little bit more skilled in a in a fight league that just doesn't have as much competition. We've seen this sort of phenomenon happen before, where guys who are kind of killing it in these smaller leagues come up to the UFC and they just don't belong yet. They're just outclassed, right? Um, I think he's pretty tough, and he had a debut against uh, Mavasar Vloyev, 
That's a hard draw for a debut for anybody. Evloyev is a freaking monster when it comes to that Sambo wrestling he's got. He just grinds you out. And I think Lopez actually did pretty well considering how tough his opponent was. He showed that he had good power in his hands. Um, he, he's a bit of a wild brawler. So I think he's using those kind of wide looping shots to gain that momentum to get the number of KOs he's gotten. Uh, but he did show that he has good grappling. He was actually able to like hold his ground with Evloyev for a pretty decent amount of that fight. Like the first round, he was doing well. Second round, he was starting to tire out. And really, it was the third round that Evloyev just ground him out and he was out of gas. Um, which, you know, a gas tank issue on your debut is not to be unexpected. Like I said, UFC is just a different level of competition. Um, but yeah, he's he is very good about hunting for submissions. That's what kept him in the fight with Evloyev is that Evloyev didn't have time to just settle, find a position he liked, and then just grind it out like he did, uh, you know, in, in previous fights where he mostly like takes the back and he's just hunting for that rear naked. Even if he doesn't get it, he's just accumulating points on the cards. He couldn't really do that as much with Lopez because Lopez was very active about hunting for submissions constantly. He does have a tendency to fight off of his back with that jujitsu style, which I think ultimately led to his defeat against Devloyev, who has a very strong top pressure game in his wrestling, which when those two things mix, usually the wrestler has the advantage in both cardio and on the scorecards, just because of what the judges are seeing here. Um, so there is sort of that weakness there, um, which Tucker does kind of have. He has his own ability to, you know, grapple. Um, he has decent striking. I think in this particular matchup, I don't necessarily see him as the power striker. I think that Lopez has the power advantage, but I think Tucker probably has the wrestling advantage. But I'm not sure Tucker is necessarily ready for all the activity that Lopez has when he's on the ground. Like if Tucker gets the top position, I don't think he's necessarily ready to be problem solving again and again and again and again, like if Loyev did. If Loyev is just a cut above the rest when it comes to that grappling, and not only that, Tucker's coming in after having not fought in almost two years. His last fight was in 2021, and that was when Dan Ige freaking demolished him and just knocked him the hell out. So I guess he knocked him out so hard, he just you know put him out for two years. Um, but I think what's ultimately going to happen when this matchup, because Lopez is kind of a newer guy, Devin Tucker, or yeah, Tucker is coming off of a, a long, long break. I think there's going to be initially a lot of respect for each other's grappling. So it's going to come down to the stand-up. I see Tucker maybe being a little bit more poised, waiting behind his jab a little more. Whereas Lopez, when he connects, he can cause more damage. So that's probably going to lead him to play more of a counter game. So it will depend on um, how well has Tucker been maintaining that striking. Because Lopez is kind of a sneaky guy, especially when he's fresh. If he catches you, that damage is going to accumulate quick, I think. Um, and then usually once you get to the second round, I think once they've made their reads, we're going to kind of see if that wrestling versus jujitsu element comes into play or not. Um, because it could be the case that, you know, maybe Tucker has a successful first round. He's maybe not necessarily dominating, but he's staying just ahead in volume and keeping Lopez at a long enough distance to not get eat, you know, eat these big shots, especially with the chin and the condition that it is after that Dan Ige fight. I think you don't want none of Lopez's power there. Uh, but if he pulls out a strong first round, Tucker might think, you know what, this might be the winning strategy. And Lopez is not really the guy to like hunt for takedowns. He's the guy to hunt for submissions. So you got to get him to the mat before you see all that activity. He's not the guy who's going to chase you to the cage and then and pick, 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 pick until you fall. So if that's the case, if Gavin Tucker decides it's easier for him to play at range, we're probably going to see more of a stand-up match. 
Lopez has, you know, the puncher's chance, but I think Gavin Tucker might have the advantage in just experience playing a more controlled distance game in the striking, knowing he doesn't necessarily want to get caught. Um, I think Lopez does get aggressive, though, in the later rounds, especially when he knows he's behind. He was able to really catch Evloyev a couple times with some nasty shots. I think if he catches Gavin Tucker with those shots, Gavin Tucker goes down, especially after that beating he took against uh, Ige. I think that that probably compromised his chin significantly. I don't think he's necessarily going to be the same after that. Um, So this one's a little bit hard to kind of suss out without really watching that first round. Um, like it could be just experience wins the day. Uh, but I do like that Lopez gets a little bit more aggressive in the later rounds. I think that could tip the scale, maybe give him a decision victory, possibly open up for like a late submission. Like if he gets a knockdown and then jumps on Gavin Tucker, then he puts it in his world, that sort of situation. Um, but I would be leaning very, very timidly towards Lopez, probably by decision, um, probably over two and a half, given the pace these two guys have in that first round. There's probably for sure going to be a second, which is usually when Lopez starts to get a little more aggressive. So that'll be kind of the turning point, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll be able to tell how this fight's going to play out after that. Um, besides that, I mean, the, the spread is pretty thin, so you could play on the Lopez money there if you want. Uh, but again, there's there's a lot of factors here where this could this could go either way based on how that second round plays out. I think it's maybe safer to just play the live odds and just kind of see how things go and, and make the decision once we know which fighter shows up to the fight night, you know? Going into this, uh, like I agree with you with everything with Diego Lopez. He looked very sharp uh, against Evlov. Uh, I think Evlov took him lightly in that one because he was taking the yeah. Lopez, was taking that fight on three, four days notice. Which is and crazy the, how good he did with three, four did. days. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. But then looking at the other side, Tucker did get hit by Ige, but it's been a while since that fight has happened, and then he's had three fights canceled within that. That's why he hasn't fought. He had two that were canceled against Pat Sabatini and then one against somebody else, and then, then it gets into this one. And he's been a very good wrestler, and I think – uh, like in the Dan Ige one, he went right into that one, and the first thing he was doing was he was trying to trade shots with Ige, and Ige was just quicker to the punch than he was, got him, and then got him knocked out. And I think he's going to play it safe in the, the first fight back here. And I think he's going to go right to the grappling side of things. He's going to go to the wrestling. He's very well-versed in that. He's had fights where he's had five takedowns here, seven there, four here. It's just a vanish for him, and he does his best when he can get the fight to the ground, ground and pound, wear on his opponent, and then stand up and then start striking because he has good cardio. He has showcased that he can look well. Compared <clears throat> to a guy like Diego Lopez, who throws hard, has very good jiu-jitsu, especially against Ivo. He is good with his grappling, but he showcased that he, would, that he started to kind of slow down a little bit in that one, and that's where Ivo took over. And I could see a little bit of that same action here where Lopez might be the, the harder puncher, the better striker, but Gavin Tucker is going to have a, a a chance to take him down. And Lopez was t- still taken down four times in that fight, and he was uh, controlled in that fight for a little bit uh, amount of time there. I believe the total amount uh, was nine minutes. So he still was controlled by nine minutes. It's just that he was able to counter a couple spots to where he was tough enough to – 
lock in a, a submission attempt on Evlov here, then land something there on Evlov. But it was just enough to showcase how good he was able to do in a short amount of time. I think Gavin Tucker is going to come in with a better game plan. He's not going to overlook Diego Lopez. He's going to take him down several times, control him on the mat. He's not going to attack the submission positions like Evlov did that got him uh, threatened by Lopez. And it's going to be more of controlling the position, a little bit less action. He might throw an elbow here, a ground and pound there, but he's not going to overdo it. He's going to prioritize keeping the position rather than attacking. And then when they're standing up, he's going to look to take him down some more. So I love the decision here. I'm going to lean towards Gavin Tucker there. I think the fact that they're giving him plus 110 odds is a benefit to me because I thought even with this, uh, he would have been the favorite because he's been in the UFC for over almost 10 fights now. I I think it's somewhere close to that. Uh, And Diego Lopez is just making his first four fight uh, here since he took the other one on short notice. So the fact that they're making him the favorite here is beneficial to me and anybody on the Tucker side. So I'm going with Tucker by decision. I love the over one and a half line here, and I like the money line since he's the, the underdog here. So I'm going to go with Tucker on this one. I am excited to see how Lopez does on a full training camp. Yeah. If he can pull out that performance on three or four days, I'm excited to see him at his best. So yeah. Let's see how it I plays just, out. I just know that if this was against a striker, I might have been went elsewhere. But it's, it's against a, a, a wrestler in Tucker, just like Evlov was. And Evlov was still able to take him down four t- times and had yeah. almost 10 minutes of control time in a yeah. three-round fight. And it was just two stupid mistakes that Evlov made. And even though I still think Evlov is twice as better as Tucker, I think Tucker is going to come in with a better game plan of control over action on the mat. I mean, we'll see. We actually haven't seen Lopez with the game plan. Like, you can't put together a game plan in three or four no. days, especially not against Ivloya. Like, that, that's, a, that's like a month's worth of planning at least before you ever yeah. hit training camp. If you know that that fight's coming, you need to, like, sit with your coaches, watch all the tape you can and go, yeah. where are the weaknesses? Because there's not very many. So for three or four days, I do think because of his jiu-jitsu style, he does kind of accept the bottom. But he is pretty good about that activity. I think that's what kept him in that fight. Yeah, um, especially with no ability to plan or even get a full training camp. So I'm excited to see what he's going to be like. I think if he can, you know, do a, a pretty big performance here, that would be, you know, that would bode really well for his future career in the UFC. For yeah. sure. Let's move on to the feature foul on the car. We got a light heavyweight matchup between Dustin Jacoby versus Kennedy in check wheel. Uh, Jacoby is the plus 120 uh, underdog, and then Kenny and Chekwu is the minus 140 favorite. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this one's another kind of like it feels pretty, pretty open and close to me. Like, I feel like Jacoby is more of a decision fighter these days inside of the UFC. He's got good kickboxing and he, he can stay on his feet. He's got good takedown defense, um, which means most of the time he wins because of his volume, not necessarily because of his power. Um, he can wrestle on the cage pretty well. Uh, and he even gets takedowns every once in a while, but it's not really a key part of his game. Uh, and uh, Wu is really big for the division. He is a big light heavyweight. He's big and tall, very long. He's got a crazy reach. Um, and he does have pretty good power in his hands. 
but early on in the fight, he's one of those guys who, again, is, is very focused on the counter game, which keeps his output low in the beginning. So I think that first round is definitely going to favor Jacoby, especially when he's fresh. He's not tired. Uh, but in Chekwu, once you like really hit him, once you hurt him and you let him know it's a fight, then he starts to kind of pick up the pace a little bit. Um, I would uh, I would uh, compare his style a little bit closer to kind of like uh, um, uh, who am I thinking of Neil Magny? He's very similar to Neil Magny in a lot of ways. Like he'll do the distance game for a little bit because he has that reach. He can place that power, but once he figures out that the counter game he's using has holes, and you know the other guy can touch him. He's very good on the cage, especially in the clinch. He gets really nasty with those knees and elbows. And with that frame, with that body, he's got, you know, it's very hard to take him down and he can generate a ton of power. Um, and that's how he just really makes, you know, dudes suffer in that clinch. Uh, and that's somewhere where I think Jacoby is less active in striking. I feel like Jacoby, when he goes to the cage, it's more to like pin you there, control you, get a good position, get some control time in there. Maybe occasionally hunt for the takedown if it's if it's looking like it's going to be that kind of fight. But in Chekwu, I think is way more active in terms of accumulating damage and letting people know who's in control of that that cage exchange instead of it being like the equivalent of lay and pray on your feet, you know. So I think with the damage accumulation that in Chekwu will be able to cause at that range, um, I think it's going to come into play for sure in the second and third rounds, uh, which is why I kind of like in Chekwu for a decision. Depending on how you know how quick he can get going and how much uh, damage he's able to accumulate on Jacoby, we could maybe see like a late third round knockout, but I'm not super high on that one. I'm really liking the decision a lot more. For sure, over one and a half. Both of these guys, like I said, none of these guys have like big finishes in the first, really. Um, that, that first round for Ncheku is really more like he's feeling you out. He's playing a heavy counter game. Even just Jacoby does put you know volume out but he's not trying to finish the fight in the first round. He's just trying to put some points on the board, take his reads, get an idea for what's going on. And then in the second, he kind of picks it up a little bit. Um, so I feel like if Nchekwu is, you know, aggressive in that second and third, it's going to be an easy decision. There is always the possibility that because Jacoby isn't a power striker, he's not going to be able to hurt Zinchekwu enough to like make him kind of respect that this is a fight and I need to like go balls out now. Um, and Jacoby could just out, <coughs> just out volume him and get a decision. Um, but because that threat is there and all in Chekwu has to do is walk forward and close the distance because he's so big and long. Um, I think the, the clinch game is going to be a bigger factor here more so than just Jacoby being able to maintain that distance consistently for 15 straight minutes. I think that's the harder job here versus in Chekwu, All he's got to do is, is crowd him, start landing those elbows, control him, the stuff that he usually does that that you know leads to his KO and decision victories, um, but Jacoby is also pretty durable. That's the other reason I'm not super high on a, on a KO finish. Uh, but yeah, for sure over that over one and a half, maybe play the live odds, especially after that first. When we're looking at the second round, we can get a better feel for what's going to happen for the rest of the fight on the live odds. Uh, maybe it might be worth it there. But right now that spread isn't too big, so you might want to go with the minus 140 with uh, uh, Zinchekwu um, if you're feeling as confident as I am that that clinch game is going to be a real factor here. I see this as a trap fight here. I think everybody's going to be on Kenny and Chekwu. I like Dustin Jacoby here by decision here. Uh, We're watching a lot of Kenny and Chekwu's fights. One that stood out was the fight against 
Carlos Erberg, even though he did win that one with that big shot uh, halfway through that fight, he was getting dominated in the volume count. Uh, Erberg was very uh, heavy with the attack. He was throwing a lot, of, uh, a mixture of leg kicks and striking with his hands, kind of like uh, Dustin Jacoby because they both have the kickboxing style. They both uh, like to fight from the range. They, and uh, with Kenny and Chekwu, he's the type of guy that likes to be a counter artist. He's not going to throw a lot. He, like he'll sit and wait and to the right time, and then he'll land a big shot. He has power in his hands, and that's usually an equalizer. But when you're fighting a guy from a distance who's not going to give you that range, uh, you kind of have to make it happen. And then that's where Chekwu might make mistakes trying to utilize that uh, that reach advantage a little too much because he has a seven-inch reach advantage, which is very huge. But because he's not as accurate, he might not – well, active, I mean, hey, he might not use it as much as he should because he's way too patient with his striking. I think in the last couple of fights, we've got it got sucked into the fact that he fought grapplers and Devin Clark and Ian Kutalaba who do have power in their hands, but they utilize the grapple more. And he was losing uh, to Devin Clark before landing that uh, that shot in, in, in that round that he started to have success in, and then he got the finish. And Kutalaba had a big first two minutes, but as always in his fights, he tired out as soon as he just dropped uh, the, the cardio in that fight. And then you look at other ones. You look at Carl Robeson. He got that one in round three, but the he the key lies the takedowns in that. But Carl Robinson's very easy to be taken down fights. You got the Nikolai Negromano fight that was a, a split decision where he lost because he kind of fumbled the bag late in the third round. He got KO'd by Dawoon Jung in round one. He got caught in that one. Then you had the one against Danilo Marquez. He was getting dominated, and Marquez made the mistake of hanging on his back for way too long and tired himself out and then just got hit there. And then you had the Orberg one, which was followed by the Stosic one, where he was taken down four times by Stosic and outvolumed, but somehow gets the victory. So I feel like he like he does have the victories and he does have the power, but he really hasn't, in my opinion, like grown as much. Uh, and yeah. even though Justin Jacoby is on a two-fight losing streak, everybody knows that he beat Khalil Roundtree all three rounds, and yet he yeah. he, he got uh, lost there. And then, he, and then he throws his first goose egg against uh, against Asmak, which I don't blame him for. Asmak versus Zana is a great prospect who has power, and he still was able to put on a decent uh, fight against him, even though he lost this one. So I feel like he's going to come back very strong in this one. He's going to uh, come with the game plan, um, trying to throw as much as possible and keep the move out because he does have good cardio and he can throw a high output. And his goal is just going to be avoid that big shot. I, I feel like he's going to attack the the strong uh, uh, striking side of Nchekwu to not give him enough range to get the, the high output uh, of range on that on that arm is just gonna uh, try and chop the tree down as you would say he's gonna try and uh, try, uh, hit a lot of calf kicks a lot of kicks to the side he's gonna move back a distance he's not gonna stay in front of him he's gonna hit him from angles he's gonna play that game he's gonna 
he's going to uh, minimize the, the power side of things for him, himself in order to land the volume. As long as he can avoid those big-time shots from an Nchekwu, I feel like he should easily win the volume game in this one. And I could see a 30-27 to 27 by him, possibly 29-28, because I do think that Nchekwu's um, reach advantage is going to allow him to throw some easy shots at him without having to put a lot into it. I just I feel like this this is kind of a mirror of the Arbor fight and Jacoby as long as he can avoid that one shot, he should be able to win uh, by decision here. So I like the the money line with Jacoby here at plus 120. You want to get it now while you can uh, before other people jump on, on the bandwagon of Jacoby. I love the over two and a half mark here, and that's about it right now. Uh, I think because it goes to the decision, it kind of eliminates a lot of the, the prop bets that you can go for, in my opinion. So the money line and over one and a half for me. Yeah. That's why I put so much emphasis on that second round. This really could go either way. It's either Jacoby's volume or in check uh, clinch game. It's, it's yeah. one or the other. And it's going to happen in that second round. Once they kind of feel each other out and they get an idea what's going on. I think Jacoby's going to take that first round. And I think that's going to incentivize in check to want to close the distance. The question is, is he going to do it? Cause it's, it kind of reminds me of when we were talking about Pogues on that last card, yeah. Um, when it was like, you know, he would in his, in his, uh, uh, Dana White contender series fight, he'd go out there and he'd just be like jabbing a couple of crosses and his coaches like, okay, we need combinations, not just singles. We need more takedown attempts. You need to get him on the cage. You need to get him tired. He's like, oh yeah, I do need to do that. But like when you're out there, sometimes you just, it doesn't connect, you know, so a I feel like check might know that, but it might not connect. And if it doesn't connect, Jacoby's going to get the volume, but if it does connect, I think he's going to get that clinch game, and it's going to be hell on earth for Jacoby with all that damage yeah. accumulation. But either way, it's it's. I think it's going to go the distance. I like the decision, but I'm not sure which way it's going to go until I see that second round. I have a feeling he's going to know that he has that big-time reach advantage, but I don't yeah. think he's going to grapple up with them. I think he's going to try and use it to strike. I think that's like what I'm, clinch, not wrestling. Clinch. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah but, yeah, but I still feel like he's gonna try and use it to try and knock him out because that's exactly what he did with Arberg. Uh, even though it worked with them, he did get the knockout. But if he would have tried to get into the clinch position there, he would have been more successful in like so the cream, uh, the, the minimized distance to throw those hands at from a uh, clinch with uh, Arberg. But it seemed like he was too. Mm-hmm gung-ho happy in countering and throwing that power strike instead of closing it up and distancing the game. It seems like certain fights he does it and then certain fights he doesn't do it. in the fights he gets hurt. And when he gets hurt, that's what flips his switch. And then he's like, oh, shit, okay, it's a fight. So it'll depend. That's why I said, like, if Jacoby doesn't command that respect and hurt him, that's why I feel like Nchekwu might stay on that counter game, which is why it could go either way. Sometimes Jacoby comes out and he's got – pretty good hands and he can put the power in there but it's not consistent it's not you know yeah. that's why i don't look at him as the power striker in this in this matchup and that could be to incheco's disadvantage but and it's going to come out in that second round because i think i think incheco anticipates that with his counter game he's going to get out pointed i don't think that's going to bother him. he has to get hurt for him to get aggressive so yeah. the question is can jacoby hurt him so yeah. we'll see and i think it, it happened in the second because jacoby usually feels it out in the first he's not yeah. super like power heavy in the first no. round no, he's all about the volume and distance. Yeah. 
Let's move on to the co-main event of the evening. Once again, if you're just tuning in for the first time, please smash the like button down below and subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're not subscribed already. And please hit up in the comment section uh, over there and to the right and let us know what you think of our picks and predictions of UFC Nashville. And from a Spence standpoint, let me know what prop bets you're leaning towards for this fight card. But let's lean towards the co-main event. We got a women's strawweight matchup between Jessica Andrade versus Tatiana Suarez. You got Andrade, who's the plus 330 uh, heavy underdog. And then you got Suarez, who's the minus 435 heavy favorite. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? Man, I'm kind of pissed at the UFC for making all these matchups that are, like, really hard for us to judge, like this one right here. Like, Andrade is a hell of a fighter. She's been on a losing streak, but she's been losing against, like, some pretty serious players. Like, if she's going to lose against anybody, and when you look at her record, that is kind of the pattern. Like, she loses against big names who are big at the time, like people who are on their way up. She lost to Rose Yamajunez back when she was, you know, banging. Same thing. Zhang Wei Li, Valentina Shevchenko. Very more recently, Aaron Blanchfield, Yan Xiaonan. These are not unknown names. It takes a lot to really finish her or beat um, Andrade. And, you know, you got guy, you got people like Blanchfield and Xiaonan. Those are some real names right there. That's what it's going to take. Suarez is a, is a name, but she did take like, what was that, five years off? And then she just recently came back, got a pretty dominant victory. It was, it was a very good victory against De La Rosa. Um, that was impressive, especially after five years. Like, that just speaks to how good of a wrestler she is. But her striking is not 100% there. And that's pretty dangerous going up against Andrade, who is a very good striker. She's pretty much good everywhere. She's got power in her hands. She can wrestle on the cage. She's got a great submission game, both on the feet and on the mat. I think she's the only person to complete a head and arm triangle while on the feet, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, she's she's really very well-rounded. Um, so I think the fact that she's lost the last two, it's kind of more, it makes sense given her history. Like that's usually who she loses to. Um, I think Suarez has kind of an uphill battle here. She is very dominant in her wrestling. The problem is getting Andrade to the ground because she has to close the distance and eat those punches. I'm not hundred percent sure she can necessarily eat Andrade's punches. I don't think that uh, uh, Montana De La Rosa has the same kind of hands that Jessica Andrade does. Andrade commands respect from opponents because of that power. And yeah, she got caught by Yan Xiaonan. But Yan Xiaonan also is pretty freaking good at the striking. And I was impressed in the Blanchfield fight for both fighters, actually. Blanchfield was amazing with her hands because like she really didn't get that much action on the mat. Like Normally, she just dominates on the mat with the wrestling. Uh, Andrade was able to fend her off pretty effectively keep it on the feet, but Aaron Blanchfield is still able to, you know, cause enough damage to create an opening for that submission, which was impressive. Um, I think, let me, what were the stats on that? We'll look it up in a minute. Um, but yeah, this is, this I'm, is kind I'm of bringing, a tough I'm bringing it up right now. Bring it up. Okay. Cause that was an impressive fight. Um, this is kind of a hard matchup for me because again, against, against Blanchfield, Against Blanchfield, yeah. uh, it was fifty-three to fifty-one uh, sh strikes. Uh, Bland, yeah. I mean, Andrade in round one, forty-four to forty. Blanchfield, uh, no takedowns, but she did have yeah. our thirty-nine seconds uh, along the fence. And then round two, Andrade was thirteen to seven, but uh, Blanchfield had the takedown, and, that, and that's what led uh, to the rear naked right. choke. 
Yeah, no, that was impressive for both parties, I think, because we really haven't seen Blanchfield go as heavy, like, without the wrestling, right? That's usually her go-to, and yeah. that's how she dominates. But she's shown, like, hey, I can I can stand, I can strike too, and I can find that perfect opening and, and finish the fight whenever I want with my wrestling. But if I need to stand a strike, I can. And same with Andrade. Andrade fending off, you know, uh, Blanchfield, that's a tall order. <laughs> like, there's a lot of women who can't fend off Blanchfield like that. So that's that takedown defense, I think, is going to be the, the turning point here. If that takedown defense holds up and Suarez has to stay on the feet, there's no way her hands can compare it to Andrade's. Like, they're, they're in two different classes. But if Suarez can kind of play it a little bit more like Blanchfield did, where she is more comfortable staying on the feet, finding that perfect opportunity, and then securing that takedown and just dominating there, that's her path to victory. But based on her history, the hands aren't there which is making this really tricky, right? So because the hands aren't there, I don't think she can replicate what Blanchfield necessarily did, um, especially with all that heat coming at her. Because Andrade, when she knows there's blood in the water, she gets very aggressive. And it only takes a couple of strikes for her to really put you in a spot where you're in a lot of trouble. Um, so again, this could go kind of either way. It's going to depend on that first, second round. We got to see how Andrade's takedown defense is going to stand up against Suarez. And we got to see how Suarez's hands are going to stand up against Andrade's. So it's really hard to say. But I think either way, this fight probably finishes in the second round, either by KO for Andrade or by submission for Suarez, um, which means you could probably play the over one and a half and be fairly safe on that. Um, it's hard. I want to go for Andrade, but that's how good Suarez is in the wrestling. So it's hard for me to come down definitively on one side, especially if I'm telling you where to put your money at. I'd I'd play the live odds on the first. That's a pretty huge spread. And if the first round ends up going to Andrade, you might see a swing. So you might lose that plus money, but the distance might get, the gap might be closed enough to where even if it's not plus money, it might still be workable. And of course, if uh, Suarez ends up having a strong first round, then playing the live odds on that, you know, minus 400 is, is probably not going to be profitable, but you could go for the uh, finish by submission in the second um, or for sure, like finish inside the distance. So it would just depend again, how does that first, second round go? A fight that I would love to see in the future would be Tatiana Suarez and Aaron Blanchfield, because I feel like be cool. just the yeah. grappling side of things with the IQ would be so well, but just to look into the past uh, be, before she, uh, retired and then came back. Uh, Tatiana Suarez fought Carla Sparza, who has showcased that she's one of the best at grappling in that division. Suarez took her down nine times in three rounds and got the third round KO and beat her 82 strikes to six, had nine takedowns and had 13 minutes of control time on a, a high-level grappler in a Sparza and she did what she did to De La Rosa coming back. She did the same thing. She had four takedowns against Nina Nunez. Uh, she got uh, she took down Alexa Grasso, uh, former champ, two times in a round one where they can choke victory over Alexa Grasso. And then she had two opening fights uh, against uh, two fighters that aren't even in the UFC anymore. So that just shows me, even though she's had that gap, that shows me where some of the fighters were at then compared to her 
and how she is coming back. And I feel like she, she can, she, with her grappling, she can come back in and be just as good. And as long as she can improve that striking, and I feel like it's going to be a battle of can she take down Andrade or can Andrade keep the fight standing and see how it is okay. in a stand-up game? Because I do think she lost a little bit of confidence in that fight against Yan Zhaonan, where Yan Zhaonan was the yeah, that was a monster quicker, knockout. <laughs> was a quicker, was a quicker, accurate striker, and then Andrade just looked. Something looked wrong with her. She was throwing too many looping shots. She yeah. didn't. She, she didn't have very good sure. movement. She was off, and that's why there's a big gap here. And I see Tatiana Strauss getting this one by round two, where they could choke again. And just like I said, round one, I think Andrade will have a little bit of advantage with the striking. She does pretty decently with the defend the takedowns early on, but then I feel like. It's just a matter of time before she gets taken down, and that's where Suarez has the huge advantage. She's just so good at holding the position, attacking her opponent from behind, and getting that sub. It doesn't matter who it is. She just has that advantage. And with and with what she's done against the top grapplers in that one, I, I, it's just a matter of what she can do to Andrade when she gets on her back. And I think round one, be very beneficial to Drage, and in round two, I feel like Suarez can withhandle everything and just get to the back. We just haven't seen somebody being able to strike against Suarez because she's so right. dominant in getting that takedown early and holding the position. We really haven't seen anybody throw at her. There's not that much yeah. tape because in the six fights, she has 24 right. takedowns, averaging four yeah. and a half. Uh, four to four and a half takedowns a fight, which is just unreal when it comes to women's uh, uh, MMA. It's just yeah. uh, just imagine what she would have done had she not retired. She might have been a potential champion already. Yeah. And I think she could make that run. I think she can make that run now. It's just going to be how she does against Andrade here. And I think it's a testament to how she looked against De La Rosa that she got that minus 435 mark on here because – uh, because she was very good in that one, and with her being rusty there and have one fight under her belt now, I can only imagine what she's going to do with Andrade, who's not going to challenge her in the grappling side. She's going to challenge her with the striking, but I, th- I think she's going to uh, close the gap early. So I think Suarez gets this one in round two by submission. I think in this one, you can't attack this uh, money line unless you do it live. But I do yeah. think that going having her win by sub is going to be a very good prop, and then maybe under one and a half, over one and a half. It just depends on how fast over she can half, get. Think, yeah. It just depends on how fast she can get the the takedown in round two. Because once she gets it, I think it's a lock almost. It's just about when she could get it in round two. So it's one of those things where it could be under one and a half, but then it could be over. Maybe you look yeah. at the odds and then take a chance on whatever odds better. I would probably say over because I think Suarez isn't stupid. I think she knows how good Andrade's hands are, and she has good takedown defense. I think Suarez knows that if she just goes balls to the wall, it's just going to burn energy in the first round for no reason. I think she's yes. going to be a lot smarter about it. I think she's going to have to you know, problem solve with those hands, uh, but that is going to mean she's going to have to take reads in that first round, which means that first round yep. she's not, you know, she's going to be hunting for takedowns, but I don't think she's going to be as aggressive as normally because she's going to be afraid of that knockout, um, which means you're probably guaranteed a first round. 
That second round, I think, it will depend on how well she could read in the first. If Andrade is kind of berating her with punches anytime she gets close, that's harder to read. That's that's less openings, right? So that's usually Andrade's, you know, go-to sort of method is if it gets close, we just start striking, we start throwing heat. Uh, so I think that's going to kind of slow down Suarez's timetable a little bit on making those reads to where, like, I think she's probably going to find her rhythm late in the second round. Um, then maybe if she gets that takedown, she can find that submission. Andrade does have a very good submission defense. Uh, so we might even be looking at if she does get the submission late in the third. Um, but like, again, if, if Andrade can maintain that, that standing fight with that respect in the hands, I mean, there is always that puncher's chance in that second round knockout, which is again, I got to see this, the second round really that's, that's going to be what seals it for me. Cause it, this could go either way. Like this is a yeah. crazy matchup. Yeah, when I look at it, the only the, the person that challenged Suarez the most was Nina Nunez right before she uh, went away back in 2019. She went back and forth with her and had 48 strikes. But other than that, the most strikes that have been thrown at uh, Tatiana Suarez was Viviana Ferreira in Suarez's debut at 13 strikes. And that was a good Nina three rounds. Nunez is not jessica andrage though yeah. that's the thing like that's yeah. why it's such a wild card because andrage is who she is if this was any other fighter like if this was rose namajunez then i'd be going suarez all day just yeah. because like it, it you know low most of the time women have a lot in the mma circuit here in the ufc they didn't have a lot more low output less power less like walk-off knockout potential but andrage is just kind of a wild card like that i think she was yeah. off in that yon shaunan fight and there is that that you know that personality type where she's coming back with something to prove. And I think if she knows if she can finish a name like Suarez, she's back on that rocket ship towards the top yeah. and, you know, all previous. Sins it could go giving. either way though. She so, could do that yeah. and get a knockout or she could force start forcing those knockout yeah. strikes and it could, could walk into and a screw up and Yeah. Walk yeah. into it. Yeah. It could go either way. That's, that's why yeah. I said, I hate the matchmakers for this. Shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to the main event of the evening. This is going to be contested at catchweight. We got Corey Sandhagen versus Rob Bont. Corey Sandhagen is the minus 270 favorite. Rob Bont is the plus 220 underdog. What are your thoughts on this main event? I actually do like this main event. I think if this was Sandhagen, Umar, Nomagamadoff, I think Umar would just blow right through Sandhagen. Sandhagen has evolved a lot, and I acknowledge that. He's always had excellent kickboxing. He's always had great movement in the feet. He has lots of volume. He can bring the power. And more impressively, he's really like rounded out his wrestling and, and grappling game ever since he got submitted by Aljamain Sterling in, like, what was it, less than a minute? Um, he's demonstrated he is pretty capable of wrestling on the cage now. He even secures takedowns every once in a while, like that fight with uh, Marlon Vera. What did he get? Like, uh, he got three takedowns. Corey Sanhagen getting takedowns is kind of crazy considering like where he started. So he's had a lot of growth, but I think it's Umar Nurmagomedov. That guy's kind of a beast. This matchup actually makes things a little bit more even, I think, because Rob Font, I think here, I think he has probably a power advantage, but he's not really as much of a volume guy. So I think against a volume guy like Sanhagen, he might be forced to take the counteroffensive game. Um, so there is a chance he could catch him. Um, of course, there's the wrestling there. Now, normally I would say Rob Font, absolutely the better wrestler, but he is taking this fight on short notice. 
And because Sanhagen has grown and evolved so much, that's a guy you have to specifically plan for. He now not only has, you know, high output, high movement, very technical, very cerebral striking. Um, he still gets a little fancy when he shouldn't, but you add to that a pretty decent wrestling ability and, you know, takedown defense on top of that, he can threaten takedowns of his own. That's a new threat. That's a threat you have to prepare for. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier, those fighters where like, you know, Lopes and Ivloyev, you can't prepare for Ivloyev on three days notice. I think Font has a lot of experience. Um, I think he could do a lot in, what was it, like two weeks notice against Soret Sanhagen, but that's not a full training camp. That's not, you know, as much time as I think he would need to really flesh out a, a very good game plan, like what he did to Cody Garbrandt, for example. Another great example where Garbrandt kind of has the, the striking advantage against Font. Font would be the volume guy in that context, um, but he did a very good job of going in with a good game plan, and then once... Uh, you know, Garbrandt showed his hand. He figured out the game, made the adjustments he needed to do, and just managed Garbrandt. But that comes from lots of planning, lots of practice, lots of game planning over the course of an entire fight camp. He doesn't have that this time. And I think with Sanhagen, you kind of need to, um, especially with what he did to, to a guy like Marlon Vera. We saw what happened when Rob Font went against Marlon Vera. And it's not very smart to do like MMA math here. But Marlon Vero is a hard guy to beat, and Sanhagen did a really, really good job because of the evolution in his game. So because it's short notice, I think I see why Sanhagen is the favorite here. Um, I think well, was, because I, I, I wouldn't say it was too much of a short notice because he was still game planning to fight Sung Yadong like a week yeah. or two later, I believe it was, or, or I think maybe it was the same fight card. So it's just the yeah. difference in who you're fighting. And yeah. on card, he's going from Sung Yadong to Corey Sanhagen. That's a Corey big Sanhagen. jump, yeah. And then Corey is going from Umar Nurmagomedov to Rob Fod. <laughs> to Rob Fod, yeah. Which yeah, is a totally different like, style. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I feel between Rob Fod, Umar Nurmagomedov, that's the bigger threat. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Sanhagen had to be preparing hardcore against a strong wrestler in his training camp to even be in the same ring against Umar Nurmagomedov, which kind of helps to kind of dilute Rob Font's wrestling ability. I think he is the better wrestler on paper, but since Sanhagen has been evolving his game and he's been preparing for a way better wrestler than, than Rob Font, I think that kind of helps him have a better takedown defense in the fight, kind of keep things where he wants to keep them. I think this is going to be probably a hard decision because Rob Font's very durable. I don't see him going, getting knocked out or anything. Um, I think he's going to bite down on his mouthpiece and just keep on going. But what we've seen in the past with Rob Font, unfortunately, when he doesn't get his wrestling going, he does kind of find himself in a bit of a rut where he's, it's difficult for him to pivot and adjust the same yeah. way he did against Cody Garbrandt. So I feel like that might happen to him here where he might get a little stone locked there. Um, and, and it might end up going to Sanhagen by decision just due to the volume and the ability to kind of keep the fight where he wants to keep it, considering how much wrestling he's probably been doing to prepare for Umar Nurmagomedov. Um, considering the styles, I think you could go either over one and a half or over two and a half. This is probably going to go the distance. So either one's probably fine. If you wanted to be safer over one and a half, for sure. These guys, you know, tend to kind of feel it out in that first round anyway. And remember, uh, this is a, and remember this is a five round fight. Yeah. Well, so. Oh yeah. Over one and a half. <laughs> over yeah. one and a half makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. So I, I really, three and a half, but I, yeah. yeah. So I like the two and a half, three and a half in this one. Cause both yeah. guys, are very good strikers, but they lean towards on the volume over the power. 
But what I like about, about yeah, this is the fact is, is Corey Sanhagen, to me, is going to be the better striker. He, he has better cardio. We've seen the past Rob Font to start out fast, but then slow down a little bit, but he still pours out a high volume like Sanhagen. But Sanhagen has been doing it against better competition. Uh, striking wise and I like the fact there his one weakness is he stays on the center line so I think he's going to be susceptible to the jab of Rob Font over and often because he's not going to move off of it and throw from angles he's going to throw from right in front of him but then at the same time he is more eclectic where he throws and adds leg kicks from different angles into the fight whereas Rob Font's more about his hands he has great He's great attacking the body, great at throwing the jab, the cross, uh, the uppercut. He has that boxing mentality. So he's going to throw a lot from different angles there. And he's going to be off the center line. So that might be his way of equalizing things. But then once you get into the clinch, that might benefit Sanhagen along the fence. You, you, you see him adapting that ever since he fought TJ Dillashaw. And TJ Dillashaw did that to him. That's one of the things that he did to Sung Yadong. He's done that in past fights ever since then. Is he likes to hold it along the fence and do some elbows and then he breaks off and starts to throw again. And he has a really good cardio. He could go five rounds. He showcased how well he could do with that. He's had some great five round uh, bangers in the last two, three years. This could be a fight that like I can see being three to two uh, to where it comes down to round five because I like the striking of Rob Bond with his hands and being able to throw in the center line. But then I like the unpredictability of Sanhagen because a lot of what he throws, it like it just it comes out of nowhere, even though it's off the, on the center line, he just throws it out of nowhere and he's going to be the bigger guy with the bigger reach. So I'm going to go with Sanhagen by decision here. I think he outdoes Rob Bond just by a little bit. I don't think that them taking the fight on short news per se affects either fighter because I think the matchup works well for both. Rob Bond was already uh, uh, like game plan for a striker in Sung Yadung. He's just more of a, a power striker compared to a finesse guy that's going to throw lots and lots of volume like Sanhagen. But he gets him at catch weight, so that kind of helps out Rob Bond to where even though he's, uh, I think, coming up on a week or two mm-hmm. ahead of what he was supposed to, he, like it won't affect him too much, and then with yeah, Sanhagen, it's still a big thing for late yeah, fighting, like a week yeah, early. Oof, yeah, right. and then with right. Sanhagen, he's coming in, he's staying the same night, but he's going up against a guy who's going to have more weight put on him, and instead of a grappler, he's dealing with he's dealing with a, a boxer. So even though he's to me he's still favorite, he's, he's he might be a little bit rusty early, knowing that he game plan against just a primary, a heavy. Uh, strike uh, the grappler that was going to take him down, and he did a lot, probably a lot of takedown defense in his training to go with the striking. So he's probably going to come out maybe a little bit slower than he used to because he's probably playing on being more patient than more aggressive in the fight. And now he's going to have to flip the switch and be more aggressive in this one. So you might see him start a little bit slow. So maybe Rob Font can steal the first round, then he takes the next two, and then maybe Rob Bond steals round four, and then you got to go to round five, and then by then I think Corey Sanhagen will be vintage Corey Sanhagen, and he'll take this three rounds to two. So 
I, I think with the, the, the mark, I definitely would say attack it live because 270 is kind of high, and it, it, you could probably get it down low with Rock starting out being a fast starter in fight. So he can get the first round, and then it could go from 270 to minus 150, and he can, boom, take that to the bank there because once you get Corey Sanhagen to minus 150, I think you're at great odds there live uh, going forward there because then he'll start to take over. Uh, in rounds two, three, four, and five. So I, I'm attacking that one live, uh, minus 270. I love them over three and a half, possibly over four and a half mark line because you can probably get very good odds there because I don't see either knocking each other out possibly. I think Stan Hegan had the better chance of knocking out Font, but do I see him throwing the flying knee again? Uh, and, and if he finishes Font, it's going to be later when he slows down. So I think... Over three and a half is definitely a great line there. I might try and eke it towards four and a half, but that's pushing my buttons there a little bit more. So I might lead towards <laughs> over three and a half live bet after round one, hope, hoping San Hagen's uh, line goes down a little bit. And other than that, that's and maybe I'll sprinkle a little bit on rounds four and five finish for San Hagen. Maybe it gets that late finish, but it'll be a thing where maybe it's 0.25 units where it's just maybe I'll take a stab at it and see what yeah. happens. And either way, this is going to be a fun one to watch. I like this matchup better than the Nomad Madoff one. This is this is more competitive. I think. There's, there's more that could happen. This is a fight that's going to be very indicative of where they're at. And, uh, of course, yeah. in Nashville, Tennessee, they want to see – action they want to see excitement yeah. <laughs> and these guys are going to put on a better chance of it lasting longer over a five um, round stretch whereas i think with umar maybe umar catches him early and takes down and submits him or just dominates him on the mat even though i think Chrissy hagan will be a matchup nightmare for umar on the feet I think that he, on, the feet, on the feet, yeah, yeah he'll be a matchup nightmare. It's just yeah. how San Hagen, <laughs> it's just how San Hagen would deal with that uh, when he's trying to defend it. That's the real mystery there. But yeah, I think one basically and, play a perfect game. You know, yeah. it'd be a it'd be a tough fight. One more right. for the fans: uh, yeah. Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz. Pay per view is coming up. What do you think? What do you think he's gonna get this one? <laughs> I got, I got Jake Parr. I got Jake yeah, Parr. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, of course. Like, I got him, ideas. If the Vaseline guy rubs too hard, he's going to open up a cut and the whole damn thing right there. I got a decision. I don't think he knocks out ideas at all, but I think he's hungry to uh, get that, that back in the wing column after losing, uh, of course, uh, to, uh, to Fury. So. Which is pretty funny. That's the first time we, we talk so much shit. The old heads, yeah. the old, you know, Cage My IQ viewers will remember how much shit we talked about fucking Jake Paul. And the yeah. one time he actually does a boxing match against a real boxer, gets his ass handed to him. What did I say? The dude's kind of LARPing here. So, yeah. you know, he doesn't want to go back to boxing boxers. So he has to go back to LARPing and fight fucking Nate Diaz for the clout. So... I don't know. I think it's a silly fight to pay for. Don't don't buy that pay per view. Just wait for the highlight reel on YouTube. It's not worth yeah, it. Exactly. But other than that, that will be it for today's episode. We'll be back for next week for UFC Fight Night. Luke K, uh, going up against Dos Anjos, uh, a very very unlikely matchup that I thought would never 
happen at welterweight, but it's going oh, to work, oh. especially in a main event fight. But this is going to be the lead up yeah. to UFC 292 in two weeks in Boston, Massachusetts. That's going to be a, a banger of a card, and that's going to be headlined by uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley. So, uh, so that's going to be fun in that one. But other than that. That wrap things up. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. You can follow uh, us on social media, as you see down below, on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. Please hit the like button down below and make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel on both Cage My IQ and Bloodline ENT if you haven't done so already. And please give us a comment in the comment section. Show us some love and give me your picks and predictions for UFC Nashville and anything you want to ask us about this card from a Ben standpoint, feel free to ask. I'll give you my response as soon as I see it. But other than that, just tune into all the con- content that we pour out on the Online ENT. We got wrestling, we got MMA, we got fantasy baseball, fantasy football, football's just in now with training camps so and we're going to be covering a lot of football on, on on the bloodline ENT and of course we also got cinema with uh Graydon he just covered uh of course Oppenheimer and then uh, and then he just covered Justice League World War so definitely check that out and check out anything else on there that you see two podcasts a day you can't beat that but but that'll be it I'm your host, uh, Cage. This is my co-host, Miles. And we'll see you guys for another edition of Cage My IQ. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.